Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. On a sunny spring Tuesday, April 20th, 1999, Columbine High School in the suburbs of a city called Littleton in Jefferson County, Colorado, an offshoot of the Denver metropolitan area, became the scene of a massacre. Two Columbine seniors angry at the world spent months planning to execute their fellow students and turn a quiet high school, previously one of the safest places on earth, into a one-sided war zone, complete with the literal destruction of the school down to its foundation. As devastating as the Columbine massacre was, it pales in comparison with the carnage two seniors, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, just weeks away from graduating, wanted to unleash upon the world. They spent a total of about an hour in the school hunting people, murdering 12 students, a teacher, and wounding over 20 others in their two-person war against humanity that would last around 45 minutes. In the aftermath, everyone wanted something or someone to blame for it all, and everything that young Americans did in 1999 was suddenly under the microscope. Was violence in music or video games or movies to blame? Was it bullying, prescription drug side effects? Was it easy to access assault weapons? Was it the school's fault, the killer's parents' fault, law enforcement's fault? Or was it mostly Dylan and Eric's faults? Part of what was so shocking with Columbine was where it happened. Prior to the massacre, Littleton, Colorado, and the suburban area around it Felt like just about the safest place you could live. The perfect place to raise a family. Not worry about your kids. The local crime rate is almost non-existent. Littleton still well below the Colorado violent crime averages. 43 reported incidents per 100,000 people compared to 375 incidents per 100,000 people for the state of Colorado. And 394 incidents per 100,000 for the United States based on 2017 FBI crime stats. How could this community be the scene of such an atrocity? That would be part of what scared America so much about this particular shooting. It felt like if the shooting could happen in Columbine, it could happen anywhere else in the U.S. It's another dark one today. Also a fascinating one. Good chance to clear up some myths. The national media kicked off a huge blame game in the immediate aftermath of this tragedy, and they got it wrong. We're deep diving the Columbine massacre today, and we're going to try to get the narrative right, right here on Time Suck. 
This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Hail Nimrod, praise Lucifina, good boy, sweet Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Long live the suck. Made it through last week's trip. Listened back to some of it, and luckily I sounded way more coherent uh, than I felt. Shroomed, but not too doomed. That was so fun. I went home afterwards, stayed out in my yard until about 9 p.m. Felt great for about seven hours, just at one with nature. Listened to Tools 10,000 Days in the Hot Tub for over an hour and made my peace with death. Not even kidding. <laughs> uh, thanks for continuing on with this strange ride, you beautiful bastards. I'm Dan Cummins. Did I even say my name right there? I didn't sound right in my own head. I'm going to say that again. I'm Dan Cummins, I think in the multiverse. Uh, Lucifina's personal mustache ride provider, Nimrod's assistant fluffer, Bojangle's favorite dog walker, and you are listening to a fucking maniac. And also you're listening to Time Suck. Uh, recording here in the Suck Dungeon in CDA with the script keeper, Mr. Zach Flannery, not with the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Sad to say that Joe has tested positive for COVID-19. Wish that was one of my Mr. Rex. Uh, no, and tested in dramatic fashion. He is okay, uh, but he's going through some shit for real. Uh, Saturday, July 11th, uh, Joe went to the gym, felt great, drove home, felt great. As he walked inside, his hands started tingling, felt weird, dizzy, told his wife he didn't feel good, and then he hit the fucking floor. Woke up to EMTs in an ambulance ride, heart rate was 155, just laying down, blood sugar dipped all the way to 51, anything below 70 is dangerous, spent five hours in the ER, sent home, felt okay when he went to bed, woke up to chest pain, tingling in his hands and arms, and then... Loses his vision, but doesn't lose consciousness. Scary. Starts having trouble breathing. Back to the ER he goes. Spends all Sunday in the ER. Doctors still don't know what's going on. Running lots of tests. Wednesday, finds out he has COVID-19. That day, his knee randomly swells up to the size of a grapefruit. Uh, Thursday night, dizzy, couldn't catch his breath. Knee swelling came back. Strange knee pain. Said it was the worst pain he's ever felt. Fuck. Uh, since then, hopefully, uh, he, he's well, I'm recording this, this past Friday, uh, you know, mostly fatigue, low fever overall, just not feeling great. It's a strange virus. It keeps mutating. Symptoms keep changing. Be careful out there. Uh, Lindsay and I just gotten tested two weeks ago for antibodies. The results came back negative. Now we got tested for COVID yesterday. Logan and Kate, uh, they got tested yesterday. Script keeper getting tested. We're all minimizing our contact with the world outside of home and work and also everyone other than me uh, working mainly from home. Well, that's not true. We were doing that for a while. We're keeping our distance. We got a little space here. We're working in different parts, coming in and out of different doors. We're being careful. Joe won't be back in the suck dungeon until the end of the month. Maybe not until early August. We're going to see how he feels. Quarantine in his basement. Uh, mostly focusing, I think, uh, on trying to set a new world record for how many times that one man can beat off uh, during a two-week quarantine. Uh, I wouldn't bet against him. Uh, he's also working uh, from home. Is a you know a little as he can so he doesn't go insane just being trapped in a basement with little to do, other than this you know record setting. Uh, but if you want to help him uh, you know feel better, subscribe to he and I's new podcast. Is we dumb? It really it really would make him so happy. Uh, he's very proud of it. Uh, I'm happy as well. I'm proud of it as well. Uh, the trailer's out on YouTube and, and on an increasing number of podcast platforms as it kind of populates around different platforms. Uh, becomes a real show on August 12th when the first two episodes drop. That's also Joe's birthday. Hope he's feeling tip-top by then and hasn't worn his wean down to a micropene nub. Would hate for him to get stuck with the micropene nickname again. Uh, Is We Dumb trailer also at the end of this episode if you want to have a listen. And I'll save other announcements for the end of the show. Send Joe some get well goodness on socials, meat sacks, please. And now let's head over to Columbine. (laughs) 
Columbine High School, named after Colorado State Flower, the Colorado Blue uh, Columbine, one of three high schools in the unincorporated southeast portion of Jefferson County. The county itself lies on the west side of the Denver metropolitan area and is the uh, most populated county in the state. It sits about 50 miles southwest of downtown Denver. School opened in 1973, home of the Rebels. Uh, A notable alumni not associated with the Columbine shootings is Todd Park Moore, vocalist for Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Graduated in 1983 along with bassist Rob Squires and drummer Brian Nevin. Those guys released one of my favorite tracks of the 90s, 1993's Bittersweet. That's a good one. Surrender. I may have listened to that song on repeat for several hours on a few occasions like a maniac. Uh, Maybe. Also released in uh, 1983, uh, Blink of an Eye, one of the lesser known albums of Michael motherfucking McDonald's, full of blue-eyed soul tracks like Everlasting. Like my mustache suits this song. Okay, back to Colorado now. You're welcome for that sweet, sweet ear candy. The large unincorporated region around the census-designated area of Columbine, along with the county's southern plains and foothills, has a population of nearly 100,000 residents, and about 1,700 of them attend Columbine High School. Just six miles away is Heritage High School in Littleton, where South Park co-creator Matt Stone went to school, uh, where he grew up, fictional town of South Park, based on Littleton. South Park's so close Columbine High School. And back in 1999, two rebel seniors were Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. I believe I referred to them as Micropene, Stinky Nuts, Klebold, and Bedwetting Mama's Boy Harris in the Killer Kids episode 194 a few months back. Uh, I stand by those degrading nicknames this week. But I will refer to them mostly by their real names in the suck. Uh, Klebold's and Harris's plans for attacking the school painstakingly premeditated. Recovered by investigators after the tragedy had taken place evolved over a little more than a year's time. There are diaries, videotapes of these two hatefully ranting about all sorts of things they didn't, you know, uh, know much about. Their mission was to kill as many people in the building as they could, both students and faculty and police, if they could help it. They wanted to shock the world with their actions. They wanted to kill far more than they did. They'd muse in their writings of hoping to kill at least 500 students that day. And then they hoped that maybe somehow they'd live through it so they could keep killing. They wanted to invade neighboring homes following the attack. They wanted to even ideally hijack a jet and crash it in New York. And this is months before 9-11. Columbine was never just meant to be a shooting. If these two had their way, they would have basically burned the whole world to the ground. These two killers, built, they built bombs, lots and lots of bombs, pipe bombs, propane bombs, even made car bomb booby traps to blow up their own cars to kill law enforcement officers. They wanted to blow up hundreds of students inside the school and then shoot any students who didn't get blown up who were running out of the school and away from the explosions. Their initial plan was for the massacre to take place Monday, April 19th, but they just weren't quite ready. While there was no specific reference made in the writings to this date being an important anniversary, it should be noted that April 19th, 1999 was the fourth anniversary of the bombing of the, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing and the sixth anniversary of the end of the Waco siege against the Branch Davidian compound. And they were uh, big fans of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombings. Old Noodle McDrywing. So why did they end up bombing the school on 420 instead? Probably not because of the date's association with marijuana. They weren't big stoners. More likely... They chose April 20th because it's Adolf Hitler's birthday. Big fans of Hitler. 1999 was the 110th anniversary of his birth. 
Uh, I think it's a pr- pretty strong indicator that you're uh, maybe not right in the head when you're a big fan of Hitler. If you were to put a list together of, say, the world's most 100 admired people, you know, most admired people, I highly doubt that any of the 100 chosen uh, would describe themselves as a big Hitler fan. <laughs> Can you imagine? Bill Gates, you know, he's made several most admired lists. Well, what drives you, Bill? Uh, you know, increasing global education access, ending systemic poverty, uh, reducing vaccine fear, and extending herd immunity to the entire third world. And, and you know what? I mean, really also, I, I just want to finish what Hitler started. Just really, really admire that guy. Big fan. Uh, making this extra ignorant, Dylan Klebold was Jewish. Uh-huh. He was a Hitler-loving Jewish team. This, this is the level of confusion and mindless hate we're going to be de- dealing with today. Uh, on one of the many of the tapes, or, or on one of the many tapes, excuse me, the two made, Eric finds out that uh, while Dylan's father, Dylan's father is Lutheran, his mom is Jewish, and Dylan's embarrassed by this. And Eric says, I'm sorry, man. That's a bummer. About <laughs> finding out that his friend is Jewish. And Dylan appreciates the sentiment. Makes it clear that he hates it, you know? This attitude of like, dude, don't think that just because I'm Jewish, you know, that I don't, I don't still love Hitler. Please, please know that. I, I, I get it. If anyone knows how inferior I am, yeah, it's me. It's me. If only he had taken it further, I wouldn't be here. These guys were insane. Before we get to the timeline that begins shortly after these two start high school and end shortly after their deaths, let's learn a little bit about each of these assholes. And I do say assholes. Uh, I do not see these two as victims at all. In the aftermath of Columbine, a narrative quickly formed that these two were social outcasts, you know, just picked on, just, and then kind of that they're like heroes of a sort, anti-heroes who did what they did in retaliation. They've been bullied, cast aside, marginalized, and they just weren't going to fucking take it anymore. Time to stand up for the little guy. Time for the trench coat mafia. You know, give it to the jocks. Columbine was their way to strike back at a society that ignored them, a society that shit on them. This is a story many media outlets pushed in the aftermath of the attacks. Numerous future shooters who saw themselves as fellow outcasts who saw themselves as also being bullied. These shooters admired Dylan and Eric greatly and carried out their killings in part because of their influence. Prominent American sociologist Ralph Larkin examined 12 major school shootings in the U.S. in the following eight years, following the Columbine massacre, found that in in eight of those, so, you know, eight of the 12, the shooters made explicit reference to Harris and Klebold. Larkin wrote that the Columbine massacre established a script for the shootings, saying numerous post-Columbine rampage shooters referred directly to Columbine as their inspiration. Others attempted to supersede the Columbine shootings in body count. American psychiatrist and schizophrenia researcher E. Fuller Torrey of the Treatment Advocacy Center wrote that part of the legacy of the Columbine shootings is its allure to disaffected youth. Uh, Recently in 2018, a lawyer for two teen boys who planned a Columbine uh, type attack against their North Yorkshire school, Paul Greeny, Reference the appeal of the shooter saying in court to a jury, they intended to shoot and kill other pupils and teachers against whom they held a grievance. They also, like their heroes, intended to deploy explosives and researched bomb-making techniques to that end. Greeny added that Harris and Klebold became anti-heroes, and there was a strange, dark subculture of adoration for them and their crimes on the internet. This is all bullshit. These weren't two constantly picked on loners, not by a fucking long shot. If you idolize these two after learning what we're going to learn today, uh, congrats, you're a fucking psychopath. Uh, Let's meet Dylan now. Uh, There's an interesting biography of 17-year-old Dylan that was thoughtfully written by a friend of a friend of Dylan's, posted on dylanklebold.net. It reads, just who was Dylan Bennett Klebold? To his friends, he was better known as Vodka, an earned name supposedly due to his penchant for the clear alcohol. He was born on September 11th, 1981, the son of Thomas and Susan Klebold and the younger brother of Byron. He began his schooling in Littleton, Colorado at Normandy Elementary, 
attending only the first and second grades before transferring to Governor's Ranch Elementary. At Governor's Ranch, he was part of the CHIPS program, challenging high intellectual potential students. He then attended Ken Carroll Middle School, which proved to be quite a transition for the young, quiet student due to his shyness. As a young boy, Dylan enjoyed playing t-ball, baseball, and soccer. He was a pitcher on his baseball team. His coach stated that Dylan threw the ball harder than anyone else on the team and absolutely played to win. His favorite baseball team was the Boston Red Sox, and he was often seen wearing a baseball cap with the team's emblem. Story has it that the cap had to be replaced several times over the years because it had become so worn out. As most of you know, he will be found dead in the library of Columbine High School in 1999 in a pool of his own blood with the same hat lying a few inches away from his head, self-inflicted gunshot wound to his left temple. Dylan had also been a Cub Scout and worked hard to earn his badges. He played the drums, was an avid Nintendo player, enjoyed a childhood full of happiness, which would become cherished memories for his family and friends. At Columbine High, he was active in the school play productions as a light and sound coordinator, was involved in video productions and Columbine's uh, student-run RNN Rebel News Network. He was a computer assistant at Columbine, helping to maintain the school's computer server. At almost six foot three and around 180 pounds, Dylan towered over most people his age. He was shy and quiet, yet could be outgoing around his friends and family. He made fairly good grades. He took a philosophy class for a short time, as well as psychology and calculus. Dylan drove a 1982 BMW 320i, reportedly attended St. Philip Lutheran Church with his family, and he had two pet cats, Lucy and Rocky, and a bird. Uh, does it sound like the biography of some constantly bullied outcast? The kid who's good at baseball, the big kid who drives a BMW? Is this a kid who's been marginalized more than, say, I don't know, one of many thousands of inner city kids living on welfare, surrounded by violent crime, who are maybe smaller than average, aren't good at sports, never sat in a BMW, don't shoot up a school each and every year? I know that Dylan could have still been bullied, but this bio doesn't seem to describe a kid severely, monumentally bullied. And we'll learn a lot more as we go forward uh, to this end. Dylan's bio continues. He kept journals in which he wrote poetry and doodled in. He was actually named after a poet, Dylan Thomas. Thomas, uh, one of my favorite poets, uh, wrote one of my favorite poems, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. Ironic that this Dylan would rage to end so much light. These journals also included the daily happenings and struggles of everyday typical teenage life which most young people experience. He expressed love, hate, lust, sadness, longing, and everything in between. He quoted lyrics from his favorite songs and bands. He enjoyed playing computer games like most normal teenagers. He enjoyed playing games such as Quake, Doom, Hexen, Diablo, countless others. His left ear was pierced and he usually wore a triple cross earring. Man, the triple cross. I forgot about that one. So 90s. I, th I think George Michael rocked a triple cross earring. Uh, maybe Rob Lowe, St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, Dylan was a cigarette smoker, smoking marble menthols, preferably. He enjoyed the occasional drink of alcohol, including mixed alcoholic drinks. It has been said that he had a legendary appetite, as most teenage boys have, eating cereal from mixing bowls and candy bars and Dr. Pepper sodas in a small refrigerator that he supposedly had in his room, a gift from his brother, Byron. Had a fridge in his room, dependable car to drive, a lot of nice friends, good brother. Uh, also doesn't appear as if he was physically or sexually or emotionally abused, lived in a nice town in a nice home, raised by a nice family. Dylan's dad, Tom, worked as a geophysicist for Champlin Oil, Co uh, Oil Company. His mom, Sue, counseled disabled kids at Arapahoe Community College. They made enough money to buy rentals and leave their jobs to form Fountain Real Estate Management to oversee their rental properties. They're kicking ass. Numerous friends, uh, you know, family friends spoke out after the massacre to talk about how Tom and Sue, great parents. Again, Dylan, not some disenfranchised youth, constantly having society kick sand in his poor, weak little face. He didn't have a childhood like, say, uh, 90s uh, disenfranchised icon Kurt Cobain. Wasn't surrounded by dysfunction, bouncing from relative to relative. Uh, according to more of his bio, 
He very much enjoyed movie, movies and music. Among his favorite movies were Natural Born Killers, From Dust Till Dawn, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I, I mean, Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers for sure. Uh, From Dust Till Dawn, uh, weird, weird, but I, I, I liked it. Uh, Tarantino's role in that movie. Super weird. Uh, he loved The Lost Highway also. Also anything uh, by Quentin Tarantino. Yep, was a winner in his book. Pretty typical for the 90s. Among his favorite bands were The Smashing Pumpkins. Solid. Orbital, yes. Chemical Brothers, yes. KMFDM, a German industrial band whose name, Kein Merheit für die Meitlied. I'm probably butchering. It's all German. Uh, Lucy translates to No Pity for the Majority. Uh, listen to Nine Inch Nails and Rammstein. Yeah, a lot of good 90s stuff. I listen to almost all those same bands all the time. Back when it was cool to have CD binders in your dorm room. I had the fucking sweetest CD binders, man. Pages and pages. Kick-ass music. To impress the ladies with. Hey, Lucifina. Come sit next to me. Flip through my binder of music. Uh, during the last year or two of Dylan's life, he made plans for the future. Though more than likely, this was a front to hide his true plans. He and his dad took a trip to Arizona to check out the University of Arizona, where he picked out, paid for a dorm room. He had planned a major in computer science. Dylan was badly depressed, although he did have many good friends. It felt, he felt as though most, uh, as though almost, if not all of them, weren't true friends and that they would only leave him in the end. Despite the vicious murders that Dylan helped commit on that horrible day, on April 20th, 1999, he is remembered by his family and most of his friends as a wonderfully smart and funny boy who is dearly missed. His actions were shocking to mostly everyone who knew him, and many still cannot believe that he had helped plan the massacre for over a year. Jesus. If Micropene Stinky Nuts could have just not killed a bunch of kids and himself, his dad would have paid for him to go to U of A, big party school in Tucson full of beautiful, sun-baked college girls. What the fuck? Did depression drive him to commit this massacre? I'm sure it had something to do with it. Uh, I, th I think uh, having Eric Harris as his best friend had a lot more to do with it. Eric Harris was a fucking psychopath in sheep's clothing. Uh, my mom worried a lot about some of the kids I hung out with. And the older I, like when I was, you know, you know going to high school, and the older I get, uh, the more I understand how justified this concern was. Keep an eye on who your kids pal around with. Keep a real close eye on who they look up to. And a lot of articles about the killings Dylan has described over and over as a follower, as a sidekick. Eric Harris is the ringleader. I wonder, had he just not met Eric Harris, the alpha of the two, would he have left Colorado for Tempe, got a computer science degree, you know, um, or sorry, uh, left, uh, uh, Colorado for, for Tucson. I got, I got the wrong Arizona school, got a computer science degree, had a, you know, a lot of sloppy drunk college sex, be living in the suburbs somewhere with a nice family and a nice house. I think so. Maybe, you know, but instead he, he mind melded with Eric Harris. I hate to admit it, but I do understand the appeal of being the sidekick of a dark friend, uh, all too well. My Eric Harris was a kid named Chris. Uh, I almost said his last name. I shouldn't. A uh, kid named Chris uh, in Las Vegas when I went to, to two years of high school at Bonanza High School. Before meeting Chris, I was a straight-laced kid from a small town in Idaho. Never stolen anything. Never tried to make a bomb. Never raised really any hell of any kind. A kid named Russ lived a building over in this giant apartment complex in a sea of other giant apartment complexes. Ran into Russ at the pool, became friends, met Chris, and Chris didn't give a fuck about anything. I had never met anyone like him. Smart, funny, didn't take shit from anybody. Uh, he did stuff like put smoke bombs in Bonanza High School's AC system, evacuated the whole school, got arrested for shooting people laying around the apartment complex pool with a pellet gun from his bedroom window. His dad was out of the picture. His mom was always at her boyfriend's house. And for the most part, he just did what he wanted. Stole stuff constantly from 7-Eleven down the street. Steal right in front of the employees and run out of the store and then run back a few minutes later to do something crazy like open the door and just throw a fucking slushy at him. And to be honest, I loved it. And pretty soon, I was Chris's sidekick. I was doing whatever he was doing right along with him. I was having a great time, stealing shit, setting dumpster fires, breaking into cars, breaking into buildings, 
running from security guards, running from the police, other random people we'd infuriated or fucked over. It all seemed like a big game. Good way to feel an adrenaline rush. Never got caught. We just kept escalating our mayhem, started making plans for stuff like blowing up ATMs. Had my dad not moved us back to Idaho after my sophomore year, I often wonder where I would have ended up. Probably nowhere good. Choose your peer group carefully, young meat sacks. Listen, actually, we should all do that. We should all choose our peers carefully. Don't hang around the Eric Harris's of the world. I'll let them drag you down. And this is coming from a guy who recorded last week's suck super high on shrooms, which, I, which actually, I fucking, I hate that they're illegal. Uh, anyway, I, I, I suppose I should probably tell you uh, a lot more about Eric after talking all this shit about him. Eric was born Eric David Harris on April 9th, 1981, Wichita, Kansas. His parents, Wayne Nelson Harris, Kathy Harris, were both born in Colorado. While Wayne was working in the Air Force as a transport pilot, he held 11 different positions at six different bases in Ohio, Michigan, and New York. The family moved around a lot the first 12 years of Eric's life. Like Dylan, he had one sibling, a brother, Kevin, born three years before he was. The Harris family moved from New York to Littleton, Colorado in July of 1993. He met Dylan not long afterwards. They met in middle school, uh, seventh or eighth grade, possibly the summer between seventh and eighth grade. Eric's dad, Wayne, took a job with Flight Safety Services Corporation in Inglewood. Kathy got a job as a caterer. Eric, not a big kid like Dylan, only 5'6", uh, 135 pounds when he died at the age of 18. His ego, though, oh, his ego much bigger than Dylan's. Dude seemed to think he was a brighter, more insightful than basically anyone else on earth. Uh, even though the world never provided any evidence to speak to that. The Harris's rented for the first th uh, three years after their arrival in Colorado, and Eric, like Dylan, started attending Columbine in 1995. 1996, the Harris's bought a $180,000 house just south of Columbine High School on Pierce Street. Then they bought a place on Reed Street in Littleton that's worth over $500,000 now. I looked at some pictures. Super nice house. A lot bigger, a lot nicer than any place I lived growing up. Uh, they were doing pretty well, too, you know? Sol solid middle-class family. Around the time Eric met Dylan, he also met Brooks Brown, Nate Dykeman, a few other kids who had become known in the media as members of the Trenchcoat Mafia, even though that term was really given to some other kids who graduated the year before uh, Dylan and Eric. Uh, kids that Dylan and Eric barely hung out with. So they they were associated with some other kids who called themselves the Trenchcoat Mafia, and then that term got thrown out to the media. That wasn't a big, big thing that they were actually uh, advocating. They weren't wearing trench coats even every day. That's just kind of how they became known. Eric and his buddies started getting into trouble like a lot of teens do. They started getting into more trouble, you know, as time went on, like a lot of kids do. Uh, they got in enough trouble for Eric's father, Wayne, to start keeping a diary of Eric's misdeeds. We'll go over some of those misdeeds in the timeline. Eric also spent a lot of his time online playing video games, super active online, almost famous in some gamer circles, posting as many as 11 homemade Doom mods of his own design. At some point, he was active in a Quake team that called themselves the RC Rebels. He was part of the generation that's pastime was exploring what was still the uh, still new frontier of the internet. He and Dylan had their computers set up on a network to play Doom together online. Some of Eric's web pages, many of them Doom-related, received a lot of attention immediately following the shootings. Most of the initial web concern revolved around two particular pages, the Doom 2 site he had set up starting somewhere around 96, and the WBS site that uh, the news focused on, which is just the lyrics posted um, from a KMFDM song, uh, Son of a Gun. He posted lyrics like, Apocalypse Now, Walls of Flame, Billowing Smoke, Who's to Blame?, uh, funny to me how music like this was blamed in the aftermath of the massacre. I, I listened to way heavier shit when I was in high school than that. I listen to heavier stuff than that now. So do most of my friends. Uh, none of them have shot up anybody. I love to work out now to stuff like Dead's F, uh, FMFY. The opening lyrics are, so fuck me and fuck you too. The world should start over new. Oh, it's so good. Fuck me and fuck you too. The world should start over new. Bring out the guillotine. 
save all the sympathy. I don't actually want to bring out the guillotine. Not really, just fun stuff to work out to. Such a good song. Harris loved KM, FDM, uh, other hardcore bands. They didn't love him back. KF, uh, I hate these fucking bands with acronym names. Never rolls off the tongue. KMFDM. Ah, you guys should have got a better name. Maybe it'd be bigger now. Uh, KMFDM and others spoke out about the shootings, uh, about how their music was fantasy, escapism, artistic venting, not a fucking blueprint for how you should live your life. Uh, after the shootings, the band didn't appreciate being thrown in with Harris and Klebold uh, as far as, you know, people they admired. You know, they didn't, they didn't like being thrown in with Hitler and Charles Manson. I don't blame them. Uh, Marilyn Manson was not one of Harris or Klebold's favorite bands, but they were nonetheless also thrown into the spotlight by the media as being part of, quote, everything wrong with America's youth. Immediately after the massacre, significant blame was directed at Marilyn Manson with various media reports about Harris and Klebold portraying them as some sort of gothic cult, kids who worship Manson. Not true. Early media reports alleged that the two shooters were wearing the group's T-shirts during the massacre. Those reports were wrong. They were not wearing Manson shirts. Uh, rumor reported as fact. Knowing it wasn't true, various news outlets continued to run sensationalist stories with bullshit headlines slandering Manson, such as killers worshipped rock freak Manson, devil worshipping maniac told kids to kill. Oh my God, fake news, nothing new. A guest from the goth scene stated on a 2020 broadcast covering the Columbine shootings in the months that followed, yeah, blame the music, the clothes. It's always the same story. Something goes wrong in the younger generation. The older one wants to blame clothes, movies, games, hobbies, pastimes. They don't want to look at how little attention so many parents offer their kids or the blind eye attitude of so many educators. The graphic content from Eric's websites that was spoken of so fearfully by the media at the time referred primarily to images of characters straight from Doom 2. The demonic pictures in his notebook that were so shocking, Doom pics. Uh, the horn guy is one of the uh, Doom 2 boss gods. It was fucking great. I played various Doom games off and on. Uh, I've played them since 1996. For years when I was younger, I played Doom for an hour or two a day. Uh, I did finally stop when one day after playing, I went for a walk around my neighborhood and I found this cat and I just picked it up, you know, kind of play with and started petting it for a second. And then I just kind of, kind of out of nowhere, I just felt compelled just to yell, Doom! All hail Doom! And I grabbed that cat by the tail and I fucking whipped it into the street until it was a dead bloody mess. Then I chewed into its stomach. I got hot blood and guts all over my face. And I ripped off all my clothes and I just ran through the street howling, Doom! All hail Doom! That was when I stopped playing Doom, you know? Because uh, for a while, you know, I knew I was going to kill somebody. And of course, that's nonsense. Never felt uh, that nonviolent, you know, uh, Never felt nonviolent, played a bunch of Doom, and then thought, oh, I get it now. I need to kill some motherfuckers. Just like in Doom. That's what Doom wants. A little ridiculous to blame a game for a crime as premeditated as Columbine, I think. Uh, yet moralists still made the argument after the killings. Uh, check out these numbers. As of 2018, an estimated 20 million people had already played the original version of Doom. How many have played all the other editions or sequels? 40 million, 50, 100 million? And how many of those players went on to, uh, you know, carry out a killing spree? According to Google, only the Columbine shooters were obsessed with Doom as far as school shooters go. So not a very strong correlation. Feels a wee bit like a scapegoat. Uh, if you want a deeper dive on stats regarding violent media influencing or not influencing school shootings and other violent behavior, check out the Killer Kids episode of Time Suck. I break down a lot more info about the link between violent games and violent kids or the lack thereof. Uh, Eric kept a lot of Doom and Quake graphics on his AOL website as well, but far scarier than Eric's gaming sites were the rants he dumped onto his homepage about just hating the world at large. You know, where he wrote stuff like everyone in it, not just jocks or blacks or whites or rich people, everyone. He wrote about hating a lot of people, most people. Wrote about killing. Uh, wrote a lot about killing. Did not write a bunch about vengeance. Did not write a bunch about wanting to get back at all the bullies who made his life a living hell because as you'll see later, they didn't make his life a living hell. 
Uh, I think you have a, a decent feel for who these uh, two kids are now. They weren't bounced from foster home to foster home. They didn't come home every night to parents who hit them, uh, weren't being molested. Uh, they, they, you know, had pretty good childhoods. Uh, let's get a better feel for them now, though. Get a better feel for the, who these kids were in the uh, months leading up to the Columbine massacre in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after a quick commercial break, thank you again so much for supporting the awesome sponsors that support our show and everything we're doing here at Bad Magic Productions. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. 
Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now it's time for today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. We begin in late 1997. Learn a little more about Eric Harris. The parents of Harris's buddy, Brooke Browns, filed a police report with investigator Michael Guerra regarding the number of threats and rants aimed at Brooks from Eric. Apparently, the two friends had a falling out because Brooks was chronically late in giving Eric a ride to school. Damn you, Brooks! How dare you not pick up your friend on time, even though it's not your job to take him or any other student to school. And if you wanted to get there earlier, you should fucking, you know, find a different ride or take the bus. Uh, apparently, Eric chewed Brooke out about this one too many times. And Brooks, who wasn't getting any gas money for the rides, did tell him to find someone else to take him or to ride the bus. And then Eric, in response, smashed Brooks' windshield with a rock. And then Eric terrorized the entire Brooks Brown household by doing shit like putting firecrackers on their windowsills at night, making them think someone was shooting right outside their home. Then Eric gloated about doing all this and more in his private journals and in uh, public online rants. During his investigation into these incidents before the massacre, Jefferson County Deputy, that Michael Guerra, found that Harris had written out a hit list, a manifesto that listed everyone he hated, people he would like to kill. That list has never been released unredacted to the public. Guerra also discovered some of Eric's rants and notes about bombs he and Dylan were making. Based on all of this, Guerra wrote an affidavit for a search warrant for the Harris household, but it was, for reasons that have never, ever been properly explained, ever filed. In 2004, a grand jury investigation ordered by Colorado's attorney general at the time into a possible police cover-up of the police knowing that Dylan and Eric were very dangerous well before the massacre discovered that a few days after the massacre, several high-ranking county officials met secretly and resolved to suppress key documents stemming from this earlier investigation into Harris, documents like the ones that Guerra found, right? They conspired to treat them as if they did not exist. In short, to lie about them. Uh, whoops, pretty big whoops here. I uh, do get the motivation to suppress that information in the wake of the attack. Had a search warrant been issued, they would have found homemade explosives in addition to more journal writings revolving around Eric wanting to murder basically everyone on Earth. Uh, because of the Columbine massacre and the later shootings that inspired shit like this today, taken very seriously. You post a manifesto on people to kill list online now? Uh, pretty good chance. Law enforcement will be talking to you uh, real soon. 
Eric apologized about the incident to the Brown family, and for a week or so, it seemed like everything was going to be okay. But then he decided to post Brooks's phone number onto one of his online rants. Around this time, uh, Wayne Harris, Eric's dad, began logging his son's problems. And and to be an armchair parent here, uh, what he should have done was taken his kid's fucking computer away from him, his precious Doom computer. No more Doom, bud. Not until you get some counseling. Video games are a privilege, not a right. Don't be a fucking psycho for a few months. No more people to kill this. And we'll talk about you getting your computer back. Also, time to read your diaries. Or at least time to hand those diaries over to a therapist. To have them read them. You lose the right to have your journal remain private. When in an online journal, you write about how much you love Hitler and how much you want to kill everybody. Uh, January of 1998, Harris and Klebold were caught breaking into a van. Were charged with theft, criminal mischief, criminal trespassing. Because it was their first offense, they were enrolled in a diversion program. Uh, The diversion program consisted of community service and counseling. This included anger therapy for Eric and the stipulation that neither youth would be allowed to own a gun. Eric was pissed about this, ranted about the injustice of all of it in uh, one of his diary entries that we'll go over later. Uh, Both boys were given early release from the program due to their apparent excellent progress within the system, and they were both given high recommendations from the people who signed their release forms. They both were so good at hiding who they really were from everyone around them. Ah, man, me and my mayhem buddy Chris... Back when I was that deviant sophomore, uh, same way. My dad and stepmom, they thought Chris was awesome. Super polite. He knew how to win over parents. I was super polite too. Got straight A's in school. My teachers loved me. Never caused problems in class. And then on the weekends, I was slashing tires and trying to make fucking pipe bombs and running from security guards. Uh, On March 25th, 1998, Eric Harris filled out a mental health self-evaluation form that was given to the therapist he was seeing for his anger management. On this form, he described experiencing homicidal thoughts, mood swings, anger, anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Uh, He made at least one attempt to reveal who he really was. His parents seemed to downplay all this, though. Uh, They did get him psychiatric medication. He was put on Luvox, a.k.a. uh, Fluvoxamine. A selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor used mainly to treat OCD and depression. A rare side effect of the drug, one that sometimes occurs during the first few months of treatment or during a dosage, um, you know, increase or decrease dosage adjustment is suicidal thoughts. Homicidal ideation, not thought to be a side effect. Uh, And important to note, he was writing about really wanting to kill people before he started taking this because a lot of people would blame side effects of this drug for what happened. Ah, It doesn't hold up with me. July 4th, 1998, fellow Columbine student Peter Mayher and his friends have a scary encounter with Eric Dillon and a few others at a local convenience store. Peter said that he saw one of the boys in a trench coat holding a big pistol grip shotgun in the air. Later that day, Peter and his friends say Harris and company, uh, they saw them at a fireworks stand where another altercation began. He claims that one of the trench coat boys pulled a knife on him while another mentioned they had a shotgun. Said he and his friends were able to talk the situation down and get away. So it sounds like Eric and his buddies uh, may have been more bully than bully victim. In late 1998, Dylan and Eric made a video for film class where they pretend to shoot their friends, friends who are dressed up as jocks with real weapons. And the video ends with Columbine High looking like it blows up. Eek! Looks real bad in hindsight. They did not get into any trouble. Uh, again, this is something we'll be taking way more seriously today. You don't get to make a class project about blowing up your school, shooting your classmates, and not get a talking to from the police. You're, you're for sure spending them. A lot of time in the in the counselor's office after that. You're not like, ah, <laughs> whatever. Just JK, <laughs> can I do over, right? Come on, give me, give me some extra credit. No, nothing, okay. Uh, Dylan and Eric began to write down their infamous massacre plan in journals and notebooks that will later be found in the boys' rooms, along with a sawed-off barrel of a shotgun and an unused pipe bomb. In one early journal entry, Eric writes, I will sooner die than betray my own thoughts. But before I leave this worthless place, 
I will kill whoever I deem unfit. Wasn't fucking kidding. Uh, He also wrote extensively about how he wanted revenge against anyone who he thought had ever wronged him. In another entry, Eric details how he thinks society could be improved by boosting natural selection. He details out initial plans for how he and V, V as in vodka, you know, the nickname for Klebold, would carry out this boosting, complete with a short weapons detail and tactics disclosure. In October of 1998, he writes again about the massacre he hopes to commit, at one point asking, someone is bound to ask, what were they thinking? And he answered, I want to burn the world. I want to kill everyone except about five people. If we get busted anytime, we start killing right then and there. I ain't going out without a fight. <laughs> this fucking dude is, is a psycho. And, and we'll get more into the psychology of that at the end of the episode. Like, I'm not just talking shit, uh, saying he's a psycho. November uh, 17th, he writes that he wants to have violent sex with a woman, quoting a line from a Nine Inch Nails song, Closer, a great bedroom song uh, to have some carnal and consensual sex with. I fucking love that song. You bring me closer to God. Uh, Eric didn't want uh, that. He didn't want consensual sex. He wrote about how he wanted to overpower some woman. He wondered who he could uh, trick into his room first. Then, uh, after after raping them, he wanted. Uh, he wrote about how he wanted to eat them as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I totally understand those thoughts. I must say, I really like the story. Didn't realize I relate too much to these wonderful young American lads. Uh, so very much, and these lot of Germans. <laughs> so much fun. How I wish I could have made a special little lady butt steak dinner for them both and just maybe had had them. Not now, Yahim Kroll. God damn it. Get out of this suck, you sick Campbell fuck. Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, Eric really did write about how much he would want to taste human flesh. He would have loved Kroll. Uh, and then he segued from cannibalism in his journal to writing about how he wanted to kill a freshman, writing down, just tear them apart like a fucking wolf. Show them who was good. Strangle them. Squish their head. Bite their temples into the skull. Rip off their jaw. Rip off their collarbones, break their arms in half, and twist them around. The lovely sounds of bones cracking and flesh ripping. Ah, so much to do and so little chances. Jesus. So many journals, uh, journal entries like that. We'll never understand. <laughs> I know there wasn't a history of, of school shootings before this, but man, truly a bummer that law enforcement, uh, you know, when, when Guerra found some of these rantings, they, they didn't take them a little more seriously. But again, hindsight, 2020. Uh, Context-wise, there wasn't a history of shootings like this when they were looking into this. Uh, there are links to the uh, two diaries in the show notes. Show notes, full of citations, always available uh, via the TimeSuck app or TimeSuck.com. So if you want to read more, you can, you can go uh, you know, check our notes and you can read all kinds of crazy journal entries. Uh, murder preparations escalated in December of 1998 when Dylan's 18-year-old friend Robin K. Anderson purchased two shotguns and a rifle at a gun show for Eric and Dylan. She acted as a third-party buyer for them since they weren't 18 at the time. She bought the boys a high-point carbine 9mm rifle, a pump-action shotgun, and a double-barreled shotgun. Had no idea what her two friends intended to use these weapons for. Once the guns were purchased, Eric and Dylan would uh, saw off the barrels of the shotguns for easy concealability. Robin would later testify about this purchase at a House Judiciary Committee meeting or hearing in January of 2000 saying... Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had gone to the Tanner Gun Show on Saturday, and they took me back with them on Sunday. I remember this as being in November or December of 1998. When Eric and Dylan had gone the previous day, a dealer told them that they needed to bring someone back who was 18. They were both 17 at the time. This was a private dealer, not a licensed dealer. While we were walking around, Eric and Dylan kept asking sellers if they were private or licensed. They wanted to buy their guns from someone who was private and not licensed because there would be no paperwork and no background check. At one point, Eric was interested in a gun from a licensed dealer. The dealer asked me if I would fill out some paperwork, and I said, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't want to put my name on something that I wasn't going to have control of. 
They bought guns from three sellers. They were all private. They paid cash. There was no receipt. I was not asked any questions at all. There was no background check. All I had to do was show my driver's license to prove that I was 18. Dylan got a shotgun. Eric got a shotgun and a black rifle that he bought clips for. He was able to buy clips and ammunition without me having to show any ID. The sellers didn't write down any information. I would not have bought a gun for Eric and Dylan if I had to give any personal information or submit to any kind of check at all. I think it was clear to the sellers that the guns were for Eric and Dylan. They were the ones asking all the questions and handling the guns. I had no idea what they were eventually going to do with the guns. When I look back at it, I think I was kind of naive. I wish a law requiring background checks had been in effect at the time. I don't know if Eric and Dylan would have been able to get guns from another source, but I would have not helped them. It was too easy. I wish it had been more difficult. I wouldn't have helped them buy the guns if I had faced a background check. And that shit is pretty fucking crazy. Paying cash for guns, not having to fill out any paperwork. It makes it impossible for law enforcement to track a gun using a crime, you know, unless you get caught in some other way. Uh, as far as I can tell, doing quite a bit of digging, this, this loophole still exists in uh, most states. I'm a gun owner, gun owner, excuse me, and I think it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, great way for people with nothing good planned to get some guns. I've had fantasies about buying guns this way, you know, so I'm not tied to the purchase of the gun anyway. You know, guns that I fantasize about using to fucking kill people who've hurt my kids or something in my in my crazy brain. And because I have these fantasies, I know it's not a good idea for me to buy guns in this way. Hey, yeah, yeah. Uh, by early 1999, seniors Eric and Dylan were both employed at Blackjack Pizza. Here they met some other people who would unknowingly help push their dark mission along. Philip Duran, one of Eric and Dylan's co-workers at Blackjack Pizza, introduced them to 22-year-old idiot Mark Maines, a computer tech who liked guns. Mark had purchased a Tech 9 at a gun show in August for 500 bucks and just agreed to sell it to Dylan and Eric for the same price. Uh, they actually paid him 300 promised to give him the rest of the money later. <laughs> Videos would later surface of Dylan and Eric engaging in extensive target practice with all their new weapons. Uh, fucking Mark, What? Uh, can both the pro-gun and anti-gun crowd maybe agree that you, you should probably never sell unlicensed firearms to underage high school kids you work with at a fucking pizza place? Sweet Jesus. March 25th, 1999, the whole Klebold family drives to Tucson to visit the University of Arizona where they paid a deposit for what was supposed to be Dylan's dorm room. He's supposed to attend U of A after graduating in April. His family later said that he genuinely seemed like he was looking forward to college life. Was he? At this point, he's less than four weeks away from the murders. What's going through his mind? What was, he, what was he thinking about telling Eric, you know, that maybe he didn't want to go through with it? Was there any chance that, you know, part of him wanted to tell Eric that he wanted to back out? Was he struggling with the plan or was he just faking happiness for his family? So close, so close to a new life, just months away from being done with school, months away from, you know, dorm rooms, keggers, good education, a sea of bikini bodies, the endless sunshine in Tucson. And he says no to that future and instead goes through with the murderous rampage that he knew would likely end in his death. Still very hard to understand. On April 2nd, 1999, Eric, Eric Harris spoke with Staff Sergeant Mark Gonzalez about joining the Marines. Why? Why do this if you're weeks away from a massacre you've been planning for months? Was he also maybe having second thoughts? No. He for sure was not. He for sure was lying. All a cover. He wrote about this in his journals. Didn't want anyone to see the attack coming. Three days later, just 15 days before the shooting, Harris shows up for his scheduled Marines testing. Gets an average score on the initial screening test. Another three days later, Harris returns to the military recruiting office to speak to Staff Sergeant Gonzalez again about enlisting, informing him he's ready to commit. Harris arranges for a home visit by Staff Sergeant Gonzalez on April 15th, yet another three days later. April 12th, Eric and Dylan record a tape discussing their mass murder plans and how the event will impact their parents and the people who care about them. While they express regret for the trouble it's going to cause their families, they appear uh, dedicated to and even uh, proud of their two-man war against everyone else. 
Eric also recorded the following on, on the 11th on video while lying in bed. He said, for the past few weeks, my parents have hounded me about the things I've neglected. My application to the Marines, my car insurance, my checking account. They don't know that none of that matters to me. On April 15th, Staff Sergeant Gonzalez meets Eric Harris and his father at the Harris residence during, uh, during a casual conversation between Gonzalez and Dwayne Harris about Eric's future with the military. Eric's mother comes downstairs, joins the conversation, asks if Eric will still be eligible if he's taken an antidepressant, shows him the prescription bottle for Lux, uh, Luvox. Gonzalez says he'll, he'll check in on it. The next day, according to the Columbine report, Staff Sergeant Gonzalez leaves a message on voicemail at the Harris residence for Eric to call him, never receives a call back. Gonzalez said he had no further contact with Harris, was unable to inform him that he would not be eligible for entry into the Marines. On April 16th and 17th, and on the 18th, Harris family neighbors Debbie Wilde and her husband, who lived two doors down from the Harris's, notice that there are uh, sounds of breaking glass and power saws coming from the Harris's garage. Dylan's Klebold BMW, uh, Dylan Klebold BMW parked in the driveway all three of these days. Police are certain the boys were making the shrapnel used in the construction of their pipe bombs this time. How did Eric's parents not know what was going on here? Uh, well, I guess they did this while his parents were at work. Saturday, April 17th, the boys go to the Columbine prom. How fucked up is this? They're going to prom with a bunch of kids they're planning to kill the following week. 12 kids, including Dylan Klebold and Nate Dykeman, drive together in a limousine. Dylan goes with Robin Anderson, the girl who bought the guns earlier. Super cute kid, turned into a beautiful young woman. Uh, she told a friend shortly before the prom, I convinced my friend Dylan, who hates dances, jocks, and has never had a date, let alone a girlfriend, to go with me. I'm either really cute or just really persuasive. Clearly, she liked Dylan. He was not an outcast. Lots of friends, good family, a beautiful girl who liked him. And it wasn't enough to stop him from wanting to leave the world in a pool of blood. Uh, Nilan, uh, excuse me, date, Jesus Christ, Nate later said <laughs> Dylan's attitude that night was normal, like any guy going to his senior prom's attitude might be. Other friends described Dylan as seeming very upbeat. He was talking about how he wanted to stay in touch with folks after leaving for college. Nate said Dylan seemed excited about Arizona. Eric Harris did not have a prom date. He asked a few girls. They all said no. But he did make plans with Susan DeWitt, local girl he'd met at Great Clips, where she worked as a receptionist, another pretty girl. Uh, talked to uh, her, her the night before at Blackjack Pizza. She went to his house where they watched the movie Event Horizon. It's a great movie. Uh, clearly, he wasn't socially struggling all, all, all that much, you know, uh, as well. She was a pretty girl, uh, wanted to hang out with him alone on the couch and watch a movie. She would later deny romantic interest in him, but she would also write a poem about him that makes it clear to me that, that she did like him. Eric complained that night to her about uh, a friend being a jerk, but he didn't uh, talk about wanting to kill anybody. Didn't even talk about hating anybody. Eric invited her to go to the after prom party with him after the movie. Uh, she declined and went home, so he went alone. Two days later, the day before the murders, April 19th, Eric and Dylan skip creative writing class, their second to last class of the day with friends Brooks, Brown, and Becca Hines. Uh, Brooks and Eric had patched things up by this point, the whole rock to the windshield, setting off firecrackers outside the family's windows. Uh, water under the bridge. Doesn't even matter since, you know, I'm planning to fucking blow you up. Uh, Brooks and Becca, they uh, went on to McDonald's where Dylan and Eric met up with them after a side trip to Eric's house. And again, how fucked up? You're, you know, grabbing some Mickey D's, grabbing some McNuggets, some McFlurries. With the kids, they, you know, very likely are going to kill the following day. Dylan wrote about eight pages in his notebook that night, the first of which read, about 26 and a half hours from now, the judgment will begin. Difficult but not impossible. Necessary. Nerve-wracking and fun. What fun is life without a little death? It's interesting, when I'm in my human form, knowing I'm going to die, everything has a touch of triviality to it. So they clearly thought they were going to go on to some, I don't know, other dimension. Who the fuck knows? 
Uh, one of his last journal entries read, walk in, set bombs at 11.09 for uh, 11.17, leave, set car bombs, drive to Clemente Park, gear up, get back by 11.15, park cars, set car bombs for 11.18, get out, go to uh, outside hill, wait. When first bombs go off, attack. And then he ends it with, have fun. What the fuck? Eric also asks uh, Mark Maines, the 22-year-old pizza co-worker and idiot, to buy some more ammo for him. Mark buys 100 rounds from a local Kmart, gives it to Eric later that night because Mark is pathetic, uh, desperately trying to impress high school kids he works with at a pizza place. Not a big Mark fan. Uh, neither was local law enforcement. He'd later be arrested for his involvement in all this and uh, go to prison for basically being an idiot. Being an idiot. Uh, on the morning of April 20th, about 10.30 a.m., Klebold and Harris film one last video detailing exactly what they plan to do and how they felt about it. Apologies are offered to their parents. They admit that they knew a lot of innocent people were going to be hurt and they weren't going to let that stop them. Eric quoted Shakespeare on one tape as he swigged some Jack Daniels saying, good wombs hath borne bad sons. He and Dylan demonstrated how they could fit their sawed off weapons in their coats, talked about all the people they hated and what they'd like to do to them. And they both seemed giddy as fuck to do what they were about to do. At one point, Klebold looked into the camera and says, hey mom, gotta go. About a half an hour before a little judgment day. I just wanted to apologize to you guys for any crap this might instigate. Just know I'm going to a better place. I didn't like life too much. And I know I'll be happy wherever the fuck I go. So I'm gone. Goodbye. <laughs> These motherfuckers were so crazy by this point. Does he Does he think his mom is going to watch this and be like, good, good for you, son. So glad you're in a better place. Uh, kind of annoyed that he had to kill a bunch of kids to get there. But, you know, happy for you, buddy. Eric and Dylan skip their first three classes and pull up to Columbine High School at 11, 8, 11 10 a.m. on the 20th. Uh, parked their cars flanking the exits and entrance to the cafeteria. Their cars had good views of the front student entrance as well as the entrance to the cafeteria. Brooks Brown had just stopped outside for a cigarette when he saw Eric pull up in his, in his car. He confronted Eric for missing his third period test. And then Harris laughed and told him, it doesn't matter anymore. Then Eric told him, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. And then he tuned Brooks out as Brooks began to speak and unloaded the duffel bags he had in the trunk of his car. Uh, Brooks got creeped out. Uh, headed across the parking lot towards Pierce Street, feeling uneasy, not sure what the hell was going on, how he must reflect on that moment now. At 11.14 a.m., the two gunmen, dressed in black leather dusters, their trench coats, wearing wraparound sunglasses, carried two duffel bags into the school's cafeteria, each containing a 20-pound propane bomb attached to timers set to go off in just three minutes at 11.17 a.m. during a lunch, when the cafeteria would be the most crowded, according, according to Eric's notes. Eric and Dylan then quickly returned to their cars to wait for the explosions. Based on information found later in the home videos and journals, the two intended to blow the school up, then gun down any survivors that were trying to escape when the bombs went off. There were nearly there were nearly 500 people inside the cafeteria at the time the propane bombs were supposed to go off. Had the bombs actually detonated as planned, luckily the timers weren't wired correctly, you know, they would have likely all been killed. The library, library would have probably collapsed into the lunchroom due to structural damage. Just two minutes later, some other bombs do go off, distraction bombs. The Jefferson County Dispatch Center received a 911 call from a person who reported hearing an explosion in a field on the east side of Wadsworth Boulevard, about three miles southwest of Columbine High. The two backpacks, or there was two backpacks loaded with pipe bombs, aerosol can canisters, and small propane tanks. They've been placed in an open, grassy space. Only the pipe bombs and one of the aerosol canisters detonated, but the explosion and subsequent grass fire enough to divert the attention of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and the Littleton Fire Department. A minute later, 11.20 a.m., back at the school, Eric and Dylan get tired of waiting for the cafeteria bombs to go off. 
After setting up car bombs in their vehicles, they each take a duffel bag and a backpack collectively containing two sawed-off shotguns, a 9mm semi-automatic carbine rifle, a 9mm Tech 9 semi-automatic pistol, and several hundred rounds of ammunition. Uh, and a fuckload of pipe bombs. Uh, they proceed up the hill towards the top of the west entrance steps, the, the highest point on the school grounds. From the, that position, they were near the north side of the library in the cafeteria with the cafeteria entrance below them. The west entrance was to their left, the athletic fields to the right. A witness heard one of the gunmen then shout, go, go. And then both Harris and Klebold pull out their shotguns and open fire. Brooks Brown was quoted as uh, saying later, I went to go have my cigarette and heard gunshots, so I took off and started running. I went to random houses, called the cops, told them I knew who it was. It was Eric. It had to have been. Brooks was seen by witnesses around this time heading south on Pier Street in the direction of his home. Students Richard Castaldo and Rachel Scott were sitting on the grassy knoll between the gunmen and the west entrance when the shooting started. Richard was hit with eight bullets, but survived, though he suffered critical injury to his spine that would cripple him for life. Rachel hit four times by bullets from Eric's 9mm high point, taking a fatal bullet to the head. Interestingly, the name Rachel is mentioned on Eric and Dylan's basement tape in which they make fun of girls always talking about Jesus. Rachel, good kid, had plans to visit Botswana as a member of a Christian outreach program to build homes the upcoming summer. Another 17-year-old, instead, the first person to die in the Columbine Massacre. Eric Harris takes off his coat after shooting her, drops it near the stairs, reloads his weapon. Lance Kirkland, Danny Rohrbaugh, Sean Graves had just left the cafeteria through the side entrance at the bottom of the stairs with plans to go to the smoker's pit at Clement Park, across the street, or Clement Park, excuse me. Lance saw Harris and Klebold standing at the top of the outdoor stairway, but thought they were just playing a senior prank, and he and his two friends turn around, head up the stairs. Lance said later, said later he didn't remember hearing gunshots, but he was hit in the leg and chest. Danny also shot in the chest, fell back into Sean. Lance turned to run, was shot in the leg, causing him to fall to the ground. Sean ran past, taking several shots to the back and abdomen before a gunshot wound to the leg downed him just outside the door to the cafeteria. Five students who had been sitting to the west of the stairs now also shot at as they run for cover. 15-year-old Michael Johnson hit but able to reach the outdoor athletic storage shed where he hides with three uninjured students who'd already made it there. Mark Taylor suffers a critical hit, falls to the ground, crippled, unable to flee with the others. He plays dead. Junior Anne Marie Hol- uh, Hutchhalter had been eating lunch with friends in the grassy knoll when the shooters opened fire. She got up, tried to run for shelter of the cafeteria, shot by Harris. She also fell to the ground. She's uh, now paralyzed from the waist down. The gunman attempted to shoot some more people who were near the soccer field several yards away. Luckily, didn't hit anyone. They uh, then lit and threw some pipe bombs onto the school roof toward the grassy hill to the right and down into the parking lot. Witnesses reported hearing one of them say, this is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. How surreal. They're fucking loving this. Loving killing kids, some of whom they were partying with just a few days before. Teacher Peggy Dodd, who was in the library at the time, said she looked out the window, could see Dylan standing on the hill just shooting. Uh, He had been a, a student in her computer class the previous year, and she remembered him as being a troublemaker who hacked into computers and wore Nazi boots and an overcoat. Uh, Dodd said that Klebold was holding a weapon with both hands and using a sweeping motion was pointed toward the south parking lot. While the gunmen were fleeing, or firing on the fleeing students, Sean Graves managed to crawl to the doorway in the cafeteria, but weakened from blood loss, he couldn't make it all the way inside. He rubbed blood on his face and lay there playing dead. Eric then headed down the stairs where he shot Daniel Rarborough uh, at close range, killing him. Dan had just turned 15. Uh, He was a good kid who helped his father's stereo business every day after school and who, during the summer, worked on his grandpa's farm harvesting wheat. He'd use that money, the money he used uh, working on the farm to buy Christmas presents for his family, been doing that for years. 
Uh, Dylan shoots, lands Kirkland again now, this time point blank in the face, lands critically injured uh, by the shotgun blast, uh, mangled his jaw. He would survive, incredibly, uh, but be severely disfigured. He lost consciousness. Dylan left him for dead. From there, Dylan goes to the cafeteria entrance. At 11.22 a.m., the school custodian sets their surveillance camera in the cafeteria to record again. On screen, students are beginning to notice what was happening outside, some going to the big front windows to have a look. Also at 11.22, Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner, a community resource officer at Columbine High, sitting in his patrol car over by the smoker's pit. He receives a call on the school's radio from the custodian telling him he is needed at the back lot, the student parking lot of the school. At 11.23 a.m., 911 call from a student at Columbine reports a female falling on the south parking lot saying she might be paralyzed. Deputy Paul Magger, who was en route to that uh, diversionary explosion, was advised of this by dispatch. Deputy Gardner uh, heard the dispatch message over the sheriff's radio as well and put his lights and sirens on as he headed back to the school. At 11.24, just four minutes after the first shots were fired, Coach William Dave Sanders and the school custodians John Curtis and Jay Galantine enter the cafeteria to find out what the fuck is going on. Realizing active shooters are lurking about, these men, with the help of a school security officer, risk their lives to direct students to get down, to hide under tables, and to get out of the cafeteria by leaving through the east exits. Fucking heroes. A lot of us might think we'd act that way to help others. You know, in the midst of an active shooter situation, they actually did it. Studs. Fucking studs. Uh, students began to realize the situation uh, was more serious than they initially thought. Many panicked and ran, leaving behind their books, backpacks, even running literally out of their shoes in, in haste to get to safety. Aaron Brown, younger brother of Brooks, among the students running from the cafeteria, he made it out of the school safely, did not stop running until he made it to his house. At the same time, the cafeteria is being evacuated. Motorcycle patrolman, Deputy Paul Smoker, up on West Bowles Avenue, north of Columbine High, hearing the dispatch report about the female down in the south parking lot, he radios, he's responding, and heads that way. 35-year-old part-time teacher Patricia, Patty Nielsen, was on hall monitor duty when she heard the commotion outside the school. She looked at the west entrance, saw a male student carrying what she thought was a toy gun, assumed that a school video production was being taped or was part of some prank. She didn't approve of how real it looked and went out to tell them to knock it off. This whole prank thing, there was a tradition of seniors at Columbine carrying out elaborate pranks. And this tradition is why so many were slow to react to the sounds of the shooting. Everybody just kept thinking it was firecrackers, just some kind of prank. Student Brian Anderson had been told by another teacher to get out of the school because of the explosions and commotion. Not realizing where or what the danger was, he went out through the first exit he came to, west entrance. Going through the first set of doors, he saw Eric Harris outside the second set of double doors, but he knew Eric was in film class, so Brian assumed that the gun he was holding was a prop. Patty was right behind Brian. Turning, Eric saw the two of them heading his way, shot at him, shattering the glass doors that separated them from him. Glass and metal fragments sprayed into the corridor, hitting Patty in the shoulder, forearm and knee, hitting Brian in the chest. Bleeding and terrified by the realization that she had just been shot at, Patty turned and ran to the library while Brian stumbled his way out of the west entranceway. He followed her to the library where he quickly hid in a utility closet. Eric Harris and Dylan uh, entered the school shortly after through the same entrance Eric had just fired on. Then they were distracted by the arrival of law enforcement outside. Deputy Neil Gardner, first on the scene, another hero, someone putting his life on the line to try and save these kids, another stud. Gardner decided to park in the senior lot where he would have a good view of the school and grounds. That lot happened to be a lot close, uh, uh, closest to the west entrance where the gunmen were. As soon as Gardner got out of his car, Harris fired roughly 10 shots at the deputy. Uh, but then his gun jammed. Deputy Gardner returned fire, aiming four shots at Eric. Gardner thought for a moment he hit Harris. 
Uh, when the gunman turned sharply to the right, but Eric was only clearing a jam. Seconds later, he began shooting at the deputy once more. After the quick exchange, Eric retreated through the shattered west entrance back into the school. At 11.25, Patty Nielsen made it to the checkout desk at the school's library, frantically called 911, tried to get students in the library to hide under the tables. Tables weren't very large, not designed to have people under them, but the students compiled, uh, complied as best they could, though they didn't initially really understand what was happening. Many thought it was some kind of drill and possibly some kind of, again, prank. At 11.26, Gardner radios for backup, telling dispatch, shots in the building. I need someone in the south lot with me. Jefferson County dispatch sends the word out that multiple shots have been fired. In the library, Patty tells a 911 operator she can see smoke coming into the room. She wants to close the doors that lead into the hall where the smoke is coming from, but the sounds of gunfire and pipe bombs, too frightening. She had children of her own to think about and rightfully was afraid that she would get shot if she left her hiding place. Deputies Scott uh, Taborski and Paul Smoker now arrive on the west side of the school. They quickly rescue two injured students who are lying on the ground near their baseball field. More heroic actions. Down the hill, Smoker sees Deputy Gardner with his gun out. Gardner yells to Smoker to find cover just as Eric Harris reappears in the west entrance. Eric exchanges more shots with Gardner, firing his rifle out one of the broken windows of the west entrance. Deputy Smoker fires three times as well when Harris retreats back inside the building where the deputy could hear more gunfire. Uh, The deputies could hear more gunfire inside the school, see several more students flee the building. Many students who weren't at lunch were still in classrooms, still had no fucking idea what was going on around them. Student in the gym hallway sees Dylan and Eric now walking east down the north hallway, firing weapons and laughing. Dylan fired his semi-automatic down the east hall, bullets ricocheting off lockers, lodging in walls as students are fleeing. Students Stephanie Munson and Melissa Walker stepped out of a tech lab classroom into the north hallway just in time to see a teacher and several other students run towards the school's main entrance to the east. The teacher screaming, run, get out of the building. Dylan fires his tech nine at them as they run for the east entrance. They made it to the exit. Stephanie is shot in the ankle, but both girls are able to escape the building and make it to the safety of Leewood Park across the street. Holy shit. Student in the counseling hall sees Dylan chase a group of students east down the north hallway towards the main lobby, Eric not far behind. After evacuating the cafeteria, Coach Sanders heads up the stairs where he passes the library, motioning to Peggy Dodd that she and the others need to stay put. Uh, seeing Eric and Dylan ahead in the hall, Coach Sanders turns back uh, the way he'd come, but he is now shot in the neck by Eric Harris just before making it around the corner. Varsity basketball player Greg Barnes, a junior, was in a nearby science room, and he looked out the window when he saw Sanders go down. He said, I saw Coach Sanders turn around, take two shots right in front of me. Blood went flying off of him as he fell, he told reporters later. Sadly, all the trauma Greg would witness that day would lead him to commit suicide a little over a year later, May 4th, 2000. Eric pauses now to search his duffel bag for something, possibly uh, ammunition for a reload. Dylan fires down the north hallway again. They run to the top of the cafeteria stairs right past where Coach Sanders lay bleeding. After a moment, Dylan doubles back to the library hallway, rejoins Eric. After Dylan was up the hall, Coach Sanders was able to crawl to the corner of the science hallway where teacher Richard Long helps him into a classroom. Chaos. A group of students, including Eagle Scouts, Eagle Scouts uh, Aaron Hansey and Kevin Starkey, attend to his injuries, administer first aid, while others call 911. They were told by emergency dispatch, help is on the way. 11.27 a.m., just seven minutes into the attack now, Deputy Neil Gardner radios a code 33, officer needs emergency assistance. He also requests medical assistance to the west side of the school. On Pierce Street, Deputy Magger sets up a roadblock where he is immediately approached by a teacher and several students who want to, re- want to report a person at the school with a gun. Inside the school, Harris and Klebold pace the library hallway for nearly three minutes, firing their weapons, throwing pipe bombs here and there. 
doing lots of damage, not injuring anyone at this time. In the library, Patty Nielsen continues her 911 call from under the desk, reporting what she can see and hear. Another teacher's on the phone with 911 at the other end of the hall, reporting everything she heard. Patty split her attention between trying to talk to 911, uh, the operator, and ordering the kids in the room with her to stay down on the floor. She's afraid the shooters will enter the library where she, three staff members, and 55 students are now hiding. Student uh, Aaron Hansey uh, hid with the injured coach Sanders and a handful of other frightened students who were trying to help the injured man. They heard pipe bombs go off near the door, and the students grew scared that the window in the door would allow the shooters to see them. Not wanting to be shot at as well, the kids hide when the gunmen walk by, leaving Sanders laying on the floor where he can be seen, in the hope that, uh, and they hope that Klebold and Harris will just think that he's already dead and not bother with the room. Once the gunmen pass, the students move back to the critically injured man's side, try and keep him company, start showing him pictures of his family to keep him talking. Again, more heroes. Uh, 11.28 a.m., Deputy Smoker radios in that the shooter was wearing a black trench coat, going off statements from the students who had made it out of the school. Eric throws a pipe bomb at this time outside the library, where Patty Nelson's still on the phone with 911. Tells the operator the shooter's right outside the door. She lowers her voice to a whisper, speaks very little after this, but the operator stays on the line, records what the phone can pick up. 11.29 a.m., Eric and Dylan enter the library, hollering for everyone in the large room to get up. They holler loud enough that they can be heard over the phone Patty's holding. Witnesses hiding in the library's uh, rooms say uh, Eric shoots out a window now uh, at, at the officials, starts shooting at the officials below. They hear the gunman say things like, everyone with the white cap or baseball cap, stand up. All jocks, stand up. We're going to get the guys in white hats. Wearing a white hat at Columbine, you know, seen a sign of being a jock. Uh, there were several hiding in the library at this time. When no one stands up, one of the shooters then says, fine, I'll start shooting. Dylan and Eric proceed to the library towards the west windows on the opposite side of the room, past two rows of computers to the north. Klebold shoots at the computer lab, while Evan Todd quickly moves to a new hiding place behind the administrator's desk. 16-year-old Kyle uh, Velasquez, who had suffered a stroke as an infant and was intellectually disabled, is sitting at the computer table in the north row when Dylan Klebold comes up to him and shoots him. Kyle takes a shotgun blast point blank to the fucking head, dies instantly. How does this fit into the Dylan and Eric were bullied narrative? Were these two seniors bullied by an intellectually disabled sophomore? No. Uh, at 11.30 a.m., dispatch reports possible shots in the Columbine High Library. Jefferson County Patrol Deputy Rick Searle has his hands full evacuating fleeing students outside who had taken cover behind Deputy Taborski's car. In three trips, he took the young refugees, including some who were injured, south to a safe place on Yukon Street and Cayley Avenue that would become a triage area for the injured. More students uh, were hiding behind Taborski's car by the time he returned. Meanwhile, Deputy Kevin Walker provided cover for the students fleeing Columbine's lower level. By that point, county dispatch had swamped, uh, been swamped with 911 calls, had to go into emergency command system to deal with the volume of reports, bringing in additional dispatchers to deal with the overload. The shooters now set their backpacks filled with ammunition and Molotov cocktails on the southern computer table. After reloading their weapons, the gunmen move between the north and south computer tables toward the western windows where Eric gets down on one knee, starts shooting out the West Library windows at law enforcement officers who are evacuating students, shattering the glass between them. Klebold kneels down to the east of Harris, fires out the broken west window as well. Dylan steps uh, or stops to take off his coat, dropping it near a table before firing his shotgun in a nearby table, injuring Patrick Ireland, Daniel Steepleton, and Mackay Hall. Outside the school, police return fire, but can't get a clear shot at either gunman. Eric Harris turns away from the windows, opens fire on the nearest table to the north. His first shot kills 15-year-old Steve Kernow, who was hiding under the last desk. The shotgun blast had hit him in the neck. This kid, he was the fifth and youngest to die that day. He loved Star Wars. His favorite character was Han Solo. 
remembered as a huge fan. He watched the Star Wars movies so many times he could recite the dialogue along with the actors. Science fiction fans nationwide put together a go-to Star Wars Memorial Day in his honor when Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace premiered in theaters May 19th, 1999. This kid had been anxiously awaiting its release. Also a kid who had never bullied Dylan or Eric before. He didn't even know him. Harris's next shotgun blast injured Casey Rugsager. Outside the school, reporters and ambulances wait as deputies help get escaping students and faculty to safety. Uh, when she got hit in the shoulder, she started crying out in pain and Harris told her to, quote, stop your bitching. She then laid down and pretended to be dead. At 11.31 a.m., Deputy Searle reports seeing smoke coming from the school. The fire alarms go off, blaring so loud some people on the phone with 911 can't be heard by emergency operators. On the 911 call from the library, one of the gunmen can be heard yelling, Yahoo! And several shots are recorded. Matthew Depew, son of one of the officers later on the scene, makes a 911 call from the kitchen looking for his dad. 11.32 a.m., the sheriff's office fielded the first media call from reporters seeking info. Media are now flocking to the scene in droves. They would total close to 400 by the time it would all be over. Several Denver police officers arrive on the scene as well, responding to incoming requests for more emergency backup. Inside the library, Eric moves south, seeing two girls hiding under a table. Once there, he slaps the table twice. Then he bends down and says, like this shit is just a fucking game, peekaboo, before he shoots and kills 17-year-old Cassie Bernal. The recoil from the shotgun catches him in the face, breaking his nose and making it bleed. The sight of the blood on his face disturbed several students who told reporters afterwards it looked like he had been drinking blood. Uh, born again Christian, as of 1997, Cassie was active in church youth programs and Bible study groups. She loved to go to rock, uh, loved to go rock climbing in Breckenridge, and her parents called her Bunny Rabbit. Student Pat Ireland moved out of his hiding place to administer first aid to Makai Hall. Now, seeing him, Dylan shoots him twice in the head, once more in the foot. Pat would miraculously survive these blasts, try to call, try to crawl back undercover. Another hero. Uh, Makai and Dan Stebleton play dead to avoid being shot more. Bree Pasquale crouched down in, uh, in the open just south of the table under which Cassie had been hiding. There was no other place for her to hide. And when Eric turned her way, she was completely defenseless. Gun aimed at her. Eric H Harris asked Bree, do you want to die? Bree answers, no, please don't shoot me. I have a family and a fiance. He laughs and finally seems to notice his nose is bleeding. Says, Dylan, it hit me in my nose. And then according to Bree Pasquale, he starts laughing again. Everyone's going to die, he says. And then he adds, we're just going to blow up the school anyway. Dylan then calls his attention to two boys hiding under another table. And Eric, distracted, forgets about Bree and moves to join his fellow gunman. Man, how much, how she must think about all this constantly. It would be four days before she would uh, ever sleep again. She was so traumatized by her encounter with Harris. Dylan was at another set of tables east of Harris where three friends were hiding. Matthew Ketcher, football player, Isaiah Scholes, ex-football player and wrestler who father later said he had a dispute with the shooters and Craig Scott, younger brother of victim Rachel Scott. The shooters flanked the table to the east and west sides. Isaiah is heard by witnesses uh, to have told the shooters that he was scared, that he wanted to go home, that he wanted to see his mom. Dylan then makes some racial comments towards Isaiah, who was black, tries to pull him out from under the table. When Dylan can't pull him out, Eric shoots and kills him. Isaiah played keyboards, wanted to become either a comedian or a record producer like his father, Michael, who was, a who was the president of Notorious Records and Fort Knox Entertainment, a firm Michael started to promote black musicians in the Denver area. He'd overcome a heart defect to play cornerback on the high school football team. He was a jock. He was also a very small jock. You look at pictures of this kid, real hard to imagine him intimidating anyone. Dylan then shoots and kills Matt Ketcher. Matt, a big kid, 16-year-old, 
210-pound sophomore, played on both the offensive and defensive lines for the football team, straight-A student, loved to lift weights. Uh, his friend and fellow student Greg Barnes would say of him, he was always in the library studying. He always put academics first. He had straight A's, but he would never brag about it. I kind of looked up to him because of it. He was never in a bad mood, consistently happy. Uh, the football team at Columbine would dedicate their following season to his memory. Craig Scott, miraculously uninjured, left to lane his friend's spilling blood, and he pretends to be dead. Eric then throws a CO2 cartridge, another type of homemade bomb. The shooter's called Crickets, under the table where Makai, Daniel, and Pat are. Lands on Dan's thigh. He's too afraid of being shot to move. Even though he can see it's lit, Makai Hall grabs the bomb, throws it back out further south, away from the gunman in the table. It explodes midair. Doesn't hurt anyone. Another fucking hero. Makai would survive, get married, have kids, become a nurse, and dedicate his life to help healing others. After throwing his bomb, Harris heads over to some bookcases between the center and west sections of the library where he jumps on the shelves, shakes them, starts swearing, firing, uh, fires a shot. Meanwhile, Dylan crosses the room to the east side of the library where he shoots out the trophy case, moves around the broken display, shoots underneath the nearest library table to the south, leaving Mark uh, Kington with shotgun pellets in his head and shoulder. Mark would live. Klebold then turned and shot the students hiding under the table to his left, injuring both Lisa Krutz and Valene Schnur with the same bullet. Then fires eight times in rapid succession, followed by a ninth shot, and that kills Lauren Townsend, who had been beside Val Schnur. Lauren was a senior, captain of the volleyball team, honor society member, uh, had a shot at graduating as the school's valedictorian. She also volunteered at a local animal shelter, planned to major in biology at Colorado State University when she graduated from Columbine. Had a bright future these two motherfuckers uh, stole. Dylan then moves to join Eric, who went to another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down so he could look at them, dismiss them as, quote, pathetic. Valene, who'd been forced out of her hiding place by the shot she'd taken, cried out in panic, oh my God, help me, several times. One of the shooters, who was reloading his weapon at the time, asked her if she believed in God. She floundered in her answer, saying no at first, then yes, trying to get the answer right. He asked her why. She said it was because her, uh, is what, it was what her family believed. And then she crawled back under the table and pretended to die. Uh, popular belief has it that Cassie Bernal, the peekaboo victim, was the individual who was asked, do you believe in God? But the above recount uh, is what, or above account is what witnesses in the library reported and what was entered into the Columbine report. Eric Harris moves now to another table where he shoots and injures Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin. John tried to crawl out from under the table. At that point, Dylan Klebold shoots and kills him. John was a sophomore. Devout Christian who didn't know either shooter, he was in the library because that's where he usually spent his lunch hour studying. Eric then walked around the table, back to the table where Lauren had been killed. Kelly Fleming was hiding behind it, as was the case, or as was Bree Pasquale, or as was the case, excuse me, with Bree Pasquale. There wasn't room under the table for Kelly. Eric shoots her in the back. She dies instantly. Uh, he shoots under the table once more, hits Lauren, who was already dead, uh, and Lisa again also wounds Jana Park, who was hiding under the table as well. Kelly was a shy sophomore, also didn't know the shooters, loved to write poetry, songs, and short stories. She was getting her learner's permit and was excited to get her driver's license soon. 11.34 a.m. The shootings have gone on now for almost 15 minutes. Dylan and Eric move to the center of the library where, where they re reload their weapons at a table midway across the room. Man, time must have been moving so slow for everyone during all this. Eric then catches sight of a student hiding under a nearby table, recognizing him, tells him to identify himself. With Dylan aiming a gun at his head, John Savage identifies himself, an acquaintance of Dylan. Uh, he asked Dylan what he was doing, to which Klebold replies casually, oh, just killing people. 
John asked if they were going to kill him too, and Dylan told him to get out of the library. John left immediately, escaping through the library's main entrance. What the fuck? Beside their friend, Brooks Brown, who was told to leave school by Harris, John Savage was the only person they spared like this. Uh, at 11.35, only other person. Uh, at 11.35, Eric turned and fired on the table directly north of where they'd been, shooting Daniel Mauser in the face at close range, killing him. Dan was a sophomore who excelled in math and science. He was named Columbine's high school uh, best biology student, and he got straight A's on his last report card. Love watching The Simpsons, love The X-Files, volunteered at the local Swedish hospital. So many good kids. Uh, not, not that it would matter if, it, if they weren't good kids, you know, but I uh, just want to point out all this. Both Dylan and Eric then moved south to another table where Jennifer Doyle, Stephen Austin Eubanks, Corey DePooter were hiding. Both gunmen opened fire on the kids hiding there. Corey's killed. Corey was a junior, technically a jock, loved wrestling and golf, loved fishing, been working at a golf course to save up money for a fishing boat when he died. Also an avid camper and the last kid to die in the attack. After killing Corey, the two murdering fucking ass clowns uh, head towards the administration desk. Eric throws a Molotov cocktail towards the southwestern end of the library. Uh, luckily, doesn't explode. Eric comes around to the east side of the counter. Dylan joins him from the west. They both converge near where Evan, near where Evan Todd had moved after being injured. Dylan makes fun of Evan, discusses killing him, taunts him, but doesn't. Evan was the last kid to be spoken to by the killers. Eric then suggested they go down to the school's common area. Before leaving, Dylan fires a shot into the library staff break room, hitting the television, then slams a chair down on top of the computer terminal that was on the library counter beneath which Patty Nielsen is hiding. At 11.36, the gunmen leave the library. Patty Nielsen, still on the phone with 911, whispers to the operator that she has to go, and she ducks into the library's break room and hides in a fucking cupboard. At the same time, the shooters are leaving the library. Deputy Searle reports a man on the roof wearing a red, white, and blue striped shirt. The man was thought to be a possible third shooter, at the time, later identified as just an air conditioning repairman out on a service call to fix a leak above the girl's locker room. This poor son of a bitch. He was just on the roof when the first shots were fired. He used a pair of vice grips to clamp shut the roof's access hatch so no one could come up on the roof and then just tried to hide so he wouldn't die. God, he's not named any of the sources. Dude just shows up to check on some AC, ends up in a war zone. Guessing he didn't sleep real well that night or for a lot of nights afterwards. At the same time, Jeffco, uh, Jefferson County SWAT team commander, uh, Manwaring arrives at Pierce and Leewood and declares that to be a SWAT staging area. Uh, silence falls over the library. For those left in it, the gunfire is now stopped. For the longest time, no one moves. No one looks at each other. No one speaks. Finally, those left alive creep out of the library through the north uh, northern emergency exit that leads to the sidewalk where the massacre began. From the library, Dylan and Eric make their way back down the hall to the science area. They look in through the door windows of some of the classrooms, even make eye contact with several students, don't actually try to break into the rooms, still have tons of ammo. Witnesses said that Eric and Dylan didn't appear to be overly intent on gaining access to any room, easily could have shot the locks off the doors, uh, but they had other plans. They wanted to give their bombs another go. At 1140, a teacher sees the gunman in the science hallway in front of the chemical storage room just east of the science room three, where she's hiding. Several students see Dylan and Eric shoot into empty rooms after they tape a Molotov cocktail to the storage room, uh, to the door next to the area where Coach Sanders and several students are hiding. The explosive causes a small fire in the storage room when it goes off. A teacher puts out the fire short while later once the gunmen leave the area. Coach Sanders dies nearly three hours later from blood loss. His last words were reported to be, tell my family I love them. Since his death, Coach Dave Sanders has had a softball field at Columbine and a scholarship named after him to honor his memory and posthumously received the Arthur Ashe Award for courage, left behind a wife, four kids, five grandkids. Uh, 
11.44, Dylan and Eric head down to the cafeteria. Eric stops on the stairs, kneels down to fire several shots with his carbine uh, at, a, at a duffel bag containing one of the 20-pound propane bombs. It still doesn't go off. Dylan walks over to this bomb after Eric failed attempts to, to detonate it. He tampers with it, tries to get it to go off. Still nothing. A witness hiding in the cafeteria hears one of the gunmen say, today the world's going to come to an end. Today's the day we die. The boys drink from some water bottles now. The cafeteria surveillance tape shows Klebold lights something, possibly a CO2 cartridge or a pipe bomb, throws it at the propane bomb. Fucking still doesn't go off. Small containers of flammable liquids are attached to the bomb. Uh, these are ignited by whatever it was that Dylan threw, causing a fire, but no explosion. At 11.46, shooters give up. They go back upstairs. Then there is an explosion, a small one. Luckily, it wasn't the 20-pound propane bomb. And the second complete bomb duffel bag beside a ta- nearby table doesn't also explode. If these uh, bombs had exploded, you know, it would have brought down the whole library on the cafeteria. Uh, 11.49 a.m., almost half an hour after they started shooting, Dylan and Eric head to the main office where an unarmed security guard and a secretary are hiding. Uh, Outside, the Denver SWAT team arrives on the east side of Columbine. Three minutes later, Jefferson County Undersheriff John Dunaway arrives at the command post police had set up, authorizes the SWAT team to enter the school. At 11.53, Eric and Dylan move from the offices to the art hall, firing weapons into the ceiling as they go. At 11.56, they go back to the cafeteria looking defeated. Their poor bombs didn't explode. Sprinkler system had put out the fire they'd managed to start. They're super bummed. Super sad now. At this time, the first reports of two gunmen at Columbine High are beginning to air on television. At noon, the shooters head into the kitchen very briefly, head back upstairs. Uninterrupted broadcast on television, now airing on television stations nationwide. Between 12.02, 12.05, the gunmen back in the library. They fire some more out of the broken west windows, fire at more emergency workers, fire at more law enforcement who are trying to get people to safety. The Denver SWAT team now starts an approach to the school under the cover of a commandeered fire truck. At roughly 12.05 p.m., 45 minutes after the two shooters first opened fire, they finally give up on blowing up the school, and they kill themselves. Investigators believe they committed suicide shortly after opening fire on more rescue workers. Eric Harris had shot himself in the roof of the mouth with his Savage 667H pump-action shotgun. Dylan shot himself in the left temple with his Tech 9 semi-automatic handgun. Both die in front of a bookshelf not far from the second floor library windows. 12.11, 12.11, the poor bastard uh, uh, air conditioning dude is removed from the roof. 1.09, Jefferson County SWAT team makes their way into the school. They find students hiding in kitchen storage rooms, terrified, up to their ankles in water from the sprinkler system. 20 to 30 students are evacuated from the kitchen and storage rooms. They even found two male students shivering, half frozen in the freezer. Most of the evacuees uh, sent out to the school, uh, out of the school through the staff lounge window the SWAT had used to enter the building. This site is what many who saw Columbine in the news remember seeing first. Kids being let out of the broken window with their hands atop their heads like they were being taken prisoner. The SWAT thought that the shooters might still be alive and trying to escape by changing their clothes and blending in with other students so they checked everyone who left the building for weapons. 325, the SWAT team makes it into the library. Four officials who enter have to step over numerous bombs trying to get to wounded victims. 337, Lisa Kreutz, 18-year-old senior, who'd been shot multiple times, carried out of the library. She pleads, help me, help me as she's taken out. Last surviving victim to to be removed from the school. 4 p.m., Littleton police enter the library, find Eric and Dylan dead. 4.30, Columbine officially declared safe, but then more officers are called at 5.30 when explosives are found in the parking lots. 6.15, the bomb squad finds a live bomb in Dylan's car, so the sheriff declares the whole school school a crime spree, condoning it off with police tape. Still dead bodies inside. Dead can't be moved until a full investigation is done. 
all those poor parents. Uh, 1045, the car bomb goes off when an official tries to defuse it, damaging the BMW without injuring anyone. Uh, the next day, April 21st, Jefferson County School Superintendent Jane Hammond closes all district schools. Clement Park, just north of Columbine, becomes the unofficial gathering place for mourners. Governor Bill Owens declares a state of emergency. The Colorado Avalanche, Avalanche canceled the first of two playoff games, and the NRA announces it will drastically scale back its Denver convention that was supposed to be the next week. Uh, the following day, another bomb is found. Authorities find a powerful 20-pound propane tank bomb in the school's kitchen that Harris and Klebold had planted. Officials later say had it gone off, hundreds of additional people would have died. April 25th, 70,000 mourners crowd a movie theater parking lot near Columbine for a community-wide memorial service. Man, 70,000. On April 30th, Brian Rohrbaugh, uh, whose son Daniel had been murdered, takes down crosses erected at Clement Park for Harris and Klebold, saying it's inappropriate to honor the killers alongside the victims. And I agree. May 3rd, dumb shit Mark E. Maine surrenders to Jefferson County authorities to face felony charges of selling a handgun to a minor. He admits to selling a Tech 9 semi-automatic handgun to Harrison Klebold for 500 bucks. Uh, Columbine students head back to school for the first time since the massacre, finishing out the school year at nearby Chatfield High. August 18th, Mark Maines agrees to uh, plead guilty. First criminal conviction stemming from the Columbine massacre. August 20th, partially paralyzed student Richard Castaldo heads home from Craig Hospital last of the wounded students to leave the hospital. September 26th, relatives and friends of slain students Daniel Robal and Kyle Velasquez chopped down two of the 15 trees recently planted by members of the West Bulls Community Church. The families contend that the two killers should not be remembered alongside those they killed. And again, could not agree more. These stupid fucks do not deserve any memorials. October 25th, the first time since the shootings, Eric Harris's parents, Wayne and Kathy Harris, meet with investigators. The Harris's agreed to be interviewed only if some questions, such as whether Wayne found one of Eric's pipe bombs and detonated in a field or not, uh, are off limits. Weird, they wouldn't want to answer that. How much did they know? Maybe a lot more than they will ever admit. On November 12th, Mark Maine sentenced to six years in prison for selling the semi-automatic handgun to Harrison Klebold. December 4th, the Columbine Rebels win the school's first statewide varsity football title after dedicating the season to Matt Ketcher. On April 10th, the families, April 10th, 2000, the families of slain students Kelly Fleming and Daniel Robal demand release of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department's investigative report on the shooting and other related material. Both Eric and Dylan's writings, uh, you know, their journal entries become available to the public at this time. Here's one of Eric's last entries. Maybe we will even start a little rebellion or revolution to fuck things up as much as we can. I want to leave a lasting impression on the world. And God damn it, do not blame anyone else besides me and V for this. Don't blame my family. They had no clue and there was nothing they could have done. They brought me up just fucking fine. Don't blame toy stores or any other stores for selling us ammo, bomb materials, or anything like that because it's not their fault. I don't want no fucking laws on buying fucking PVC pipes. Uh, we are kind of a select case here, so don't think this will happen again. Don't blame the school. Don't fucking put cops all over the place just because we went on a killing spree. Doesn't mean everyone else will and hardly ever do people and hardly, yeah, whatever, ever do people bring bombs or guns to school anyway. The admin is doing a fine job as it is. I don't know who will be left after we kill, but damn it, don't change any policy just because of us. It would be stupid, and if there is any way in this fucked up universe we can come back as ghosts or what the fuck ever, we will haunt the life out of anyone who blames anyone besides me and V. If by some weird-ass shit luck me and V survive and escape, we will move to some island somewhere, or maybe Mexico, New Zealand, or some exotic place where Americans can't get us. 
if there isn't such a place, then we'll just hijack a hell of a lot of bombs and crash a plane into New York City with us uh, inside, firing away as we go down. Just something to cause more devastation. And that will take us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Uh, so that was a brutal one. 13 dead, 21 other shot, several other, other kids injured as well. Well, so, uh, I think the big question, you know, is, 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 you know, we've been kind of looking at, but why did they do it? Uh, well, despite everything you just heard, they didn't do it. Come on, <laughs> wake up sheeple. Can't believe you fell for all this shit. None of this happened. It's all smoke and mirrors and false flags and crisis actors. Uh, some people actually believe that. Some people believe that all of this was faked. Convinced everything I just told you never happened. Not a lot of people, but some wackadoodles. Idiots of the internet like Mark Tokarski. Idiots of the internet. Before I really try and answer that question, uh, going to do an Idiots of the Internet segment a little differently today. Couldn't find a good Columbine video. Did find a good blog post, though. So today's Idiots of the Internet, it's really just uh, singular, one idiot. Mark Tokarski, a Polish monster, of course. <laughs> of course, a Polish person would think this is all fake. Do you know that nine out of 10 Polish people don't believe in mirrors? Hmm? They think there just uh, happen to be a lot of people living around them who look exactly like they do. People hiding behind windows and glass doors they can't figure out how to open. <laughs> JK, gosh dang. No, uh, Tokarski, regular contributor to the virtual think tank and Ivy League equivalent educational website, peaceofmindful.com. Holy wackadoodle. Uh, he wrote a gigantic dissertation about Columbine that would take about, I don't know, 12, 16 hours to fully dissect. So many pictures, so many diagrams, lots of schematics, a lot of arrows, a lot of dots being connected, put a lot of work into a lot of insanity. Uh, essentially, he thinks that, quote, Columbine was a fake event done to scare us. Frightened people are much easier to govern than confident and knowledgeable ones. He says, the Pulse nightclub shooting, Boston Marathon bombings, Sandy Hook, 911, Columbine. You can almost hear him laughing. <laughs> fake, fake, fake. All psyops, he says. All staged Illuminati operations to scare you into being easier to control. How are you being controlled? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't make that part real clear. He just keeps saying that you are being controlled and, and, and enslaved. He's big on claims, light on details regarding those claims. Uh, this preposterously paranoid motherfucker says that Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris... Never existed. Not real. Fictitious names. Really seems to believe this. Think about how crazy this is. There have been a lot of documentaries done on Columbine. So many interviews. Many of the survivors have gone on to give uh, more additional interviews about how the shooting changed their lives. Many books have been written. Hundreds and hundreds of witnesses who weren't at the school when the shootings began were near the school watching events unfold by the time things ended. Watching, you know, bloody students flee from the building students who all told the same basic story about what happened. Over a thousand students going to school that day didn't die. And he thinks that all these people, crisis actors. Sue Klebold, who did a TED Talk viewed by millions about her son, Dylan. Ah, fake. And not one person who knows Sue in real life has ever called her out on talking about her fake son. It's crazy. The TED Talk people also in on it, or at least duped by this false flag. This crazy fuck goes on and on talking about how Dylan and Eric's yearbook photos, which look very normal to me. Nope, photoshopped. Uh, all the videos, uh, not them, actors. And this is my favorite part. They think uh, behind a lot of this are the South Park guys, right? The South Park creators. They're in on this conspiracy big time. These two fucking Hollywood elite globalists 
are working with the government to suppress the American people for reasons that Mark does not ever make clear. Uh, South Park co-creator Matt Stone is a crisis actor. Who's <laughs> He's a fucking talented crisis actor. He's had a good show for a long time. He's a crisis actor whose face was used as the basis from which to create the fake face wake up of Dylan Klebold and Trey Parker, the other South Park co-creator, his face was used to create, obviously, Eric Harris's fake-ass face. And he has all these, <laughs> he has like numerous pictures put together attempting to show this transition. And it's so bad. Neither guy looks anything like the shooters. But he, pre uh, he presents it all as this type of aha type revelation. Uh, the South Park guys look about as much as, you know, Dylan and, and Eric as I look like Denzel Washington. Uh, Mark Tukarski ends his insane breakdown of literally everything we went over today and more by writing, only know this. At Columbine High School on April 20th, 110th day of the year, as if that's somehow important, 1999, no one died, no one was wounded, and not one real tear was shed by any victim or onlooker. It was a psyop. Nothing more. If you read those words and now realize that our most trusted institutions, police, SWAT, media, news, school district, and court system all played a part, then you are officially now in on the game. No event will again surprise or shock you, nor will you ever again trust a news report. Welcome to the real world. Oh, Mark, I wish I could welcome you to the real world. I don't know where the fuck you're living. It's not on this planet. Uh, Mark also, to give a little more context for who Mark is, uh, he doesn't think COVID-19 is real. Doesn't think, think the Cuban Missile Crisis ever happened. Uh, doesn't think that AIDS is real. Doesn't think so many other things are real. My favorite one, I've never heard this before. <laughs> he thinks that Jesus was real, but he thinks that Jesus faked his own death. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he thinks that Jesus has a twin brother who pretended to be Jesus for parts of the Bible. So like there was one Jesus for part of the Bible and there was another Jesus, his twin brother for another part of the Bible. And then the, the first Jesus, uh, he snuck off with Mary, Mary Magdalene to live on Crete. And he thinks, <laughs> he thinks the apostles were quote crisis actors. I fucking love it. He thinks the apostles were early crisis actors. Uh, and, <laughs> and my favorite part is he tries to prove it with pictures. He, uh, he, he has these, all these pictures in the blog of Jesus drawn by people who obviously never saw Jesus. <laughs> There's no historical, uh, you know, exact account of what this person is supposed to look like. Uh, so he just took uh, like, like paintings that would be found in various churches. And because all of the paintings don't look exactly to the same, he came to the conclusion, obviously, it's more than one Jesus. He doesn't understand that like the pictures he's comparing are not fucking photos. They're just random artistic interpretations. Imagine this level of paranoia. Like imagine like you go to one church and you see a painting of Jesus on the wall and you're like, oh, okay, all right. That's, that's what he looks like. Okay, I mean, that's what they told me. They're telling me he's Jesus. So that's, okay, that's what it looks like. And then later you go to another church and the picture looks a little different. You're like, hey, Wait a minute. What kind of stunt are you guys trying to pull? Yeah, I get it. He has a twin brother. Uh, Mark, like any other Columbine denier, is an idiot of the internet. It happened. My God, please don't be like Mark. Don't, don't believe that they're all in on it. They're not. Sometimes people lie. Sometimes people conspire. But to pull off something like faking Columbine, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, if you're going to believe that, then you can't believe in literally anything. What do you think you're looking at right now? What do you think you're hearing? Ah, fake. Psyops, baby. Just chips in your brain. You're not where you think you are. You're not who you think you are. You don't know anything you think you know. All implants, all reality matrix manipulation. That's the real world. Get the fuck out of here. Idiots of the internet. 
So really, why did they do it? Was it because they were social outcasts bullied by the jocks? I don't think so. Peter Langman, a psychologist who has studied school shootings so extensively that Dylan's fake-ass crisis actor mom, uh, Sue Klebold, uh, contacted him for insight about her fake son, Dylan, uh, while she was writing a fake memoir, said, a thorough look at the shooter's lives, one not based on panic students' reports, refutes this, you know, refutes the notion that they were bullied. Langman added, they both had a lot of friends. They both engaged, and oh, and he's referring to right there that some people immediately, immediately uh, interviewed, and, and, and by like some, I mean like, a couple said that these kids have been bullied. They said that there was a bullying culture, but you know, there, there's a bullying. You could say that about any school. Uh, Langman adds, they both had a lot of friends. They both engaged in school activities, out of school activities. They worked part-time jobs with some of their buddies at a pizza shop. Both were in a bowling league. Harris had played on the school soccer team as a freshman and sophomore, continued to play soccer and volleyball after school, according to the sheriff's office report. Uh, Klebold was in a fantasy baseball league. And like we covered, had gone to prom with a female friend a few days before the massacre. Uh, the New York Times initially reported that Harrison Klebold appeared to target peers who had poked fun at the group in the past. The Washington Post said students described them as a constant target of derision for at least four years. The Los Angeles Times said students considered the attack lethal payback for old taunts and prejudices. But Langman and many others don't buy this shit for a second. Langman says, yes, Harrison Klebold were sometimes teased but they were nowhere near the most bullied in the school and were much more frequently the bullies than the victims of bullies. And he says, Harris's and Klebold's own writings speak to this. Langman added that Harris's personal writings show many reasons for his desire to kill. He wanted to see himself as the law. He killed for sadistic pleasure. He killed because he felt according to the writings that the human race is only worth killing and also as revenge for being teased. Revenge, one of many reasons. More often than not, Harris expressed a desire to kill complete strangers. Finally, Harris and Klebold didn't kill any of the students they alleged had teased them, despite hunting classmates for 45 minutes, so clearly it wasn't much of a fucking priority. Uh, the FBI also came to the same conclusion, that these two were not excessively bullied. Three months after the massacre, the FBI convened a summit in Leesburg, Virginia, that included world-renowned mental health experts, including Michigan State University psychiatrist Dr. Frank Ockberg, as well as supervisory special agent Dwayne Fuselier, uh, the FBI's lead Columbine investigator and a clinical psychologist. Fuselier and Ockberg concluded that the killers were less interested in revenge as though at those who teased them, more interested in terrorizing the entire nation by attacking a symbol of American life, their school. They bragged about dwarfing the carnage of the Oklahoma City bombing. They were gunning for devastating infamy on the historical scale of Attila the Hunt. Their vision was to create a nightmare so devastating and apocalyptic that the entire world would shudder at their power. And why would they be motivated to do this? Mostly because Eric Harris was a fucking psychopath. Dylan Klebold was his, his depressed, suicidal, hot-headed follower, his sidekick. The psychiatrist at the summit added that Harris was not merely a troubled kid, he was truly a psychopath. His journal entries were not the rantings of an angry young man picked up, uh, picked on by jocks until he couldn't take it anymore. They were the rantings of someone with a messianic, a messianic, messianic that's a, such a tough word for me, sorry, uh, messianic grade superiority complex out to punish the entire human race for its appalling inferiority. He also loved to lie, another psychopathic trait, right? I lie a lot, Eric wrote, almost constantly into everybody, duping delight, a key characteristic of the psychopathic profile. Harris marries this deceitfulness with a total lack of remorse or empathy, another distinctive quality of the psychopath. Fuselier said what fully convinced him that Harris was a psychopath was his response to being punished after being caught breaking into that van. 
He made himself out to be the victim in this situation. He wrote in his journal, isn't America supposed to be the land of the free? How come if I'm free, I can't deprive a stupid fucking dumb shit from his possessions if he leaves them sitting in the front seat of his fucking van out in plain sight and in the middle of fucking nowhere on a fry fucking day night? Natural selection, fucker should be shot. Harris also verbally taunted victims he'd shot. No empathy, no emotional reaction to killing them. Victims mean nothing to a psychopath. And the FBI Summit of Mental Health Experts thought that Klebold would have never been able to pull off Columbine without Harris and may have gone on to had a normal life had he not been pulled into Harris's world. So who's to blame for Columbine? Not violence in music or video games or movies, not bullying, not prescription drug side effects, not the school's fault, not law enforcement's fault. Sure, they should have caught some red flags, but that doesn't make it, I would say, quote unquote, their fault. Uh, easy access to assault weapons cer- certainly didn't help, but the blame falls mainly on Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold and bad mental health. Should the school and his parents and law enforcement have taken the, you know, disturbing, that, that, that disturbing online people to kill list, the, the violent class projects more seriously? Boy, of course. But they couldn't have known where that would lead. A lot of kids claim to want to kill lots of people. A lot of kids do disturbing shit, make disturbing drawings. Most don't, you know, blow up, uh, try to blow up a fucking school. Still, you know, you shouldn't ignore shit like that. Uh, when my daughter Monroe was in preschool, some kid on her preschool bus forced his way into the seat, uh, uh, hit her, kept trying to grab her crotch. Monroe said she was uh, that he was doing this to other kids on the bus as well. And then he'd gotten caught several times. He was still riding the bus. And I went straight to her preschool's administrator's office. Fucking uh, hot. Screw a phone call. Fucking appointment. I'm coming in there. I wanted to know why this kid was still on the bus. She didn't have a good answer for me. Then she told me that she'd spoken with the boy's family and that he had been suspended for a few days uh, from riding the bus. And I said, not good enough. I told her I was going to make a, uh, an email, going to write up an email, send her a little summary of our exchange, making it real clear that I felt like my daughter was in danger uh, of basically being sexually assaulted on the bus and that I had spoken to her and that she hadn't taken it seriously. And I told her that if that little motherfucker rode the bus again, touched my daughter one more fucking time, I'd show that email to the police, a lawyer, and then I would dedicate my fucking life to make sure she lost her job and then I'd sue her ass, sue the school and that little dipshit's parents. And guess what? Little fuckhead got banned from the bus. Extreme reaction on my part? Yeah. But I thought it uh, might get results and it did. Did I think that little four-year-old was going to be, was a rapist? No. Uh, do I think his parents probably ended up so embarrassed by all that that he ended up getting in a, a very memorable amount of trouble, maybe enough to send him on a path of not being a creep? I hope so. Fuck that kid. I still hate that kid. Uh, and fuck Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. They weren't victims pushed to their breaking points. They were sadistic killers and at least one truly a psychopath. Some people just don't want to play nice. Some people born bad. Some people are dangerous, heartless predators disguised as fellow humans. And I wish I could magically know who those people were And if I couldn't magically cure them, I'd like to push a button and just obliterate them and remove them from Earth. Okay. I think Columbine has been sucked. Let's recap today's bad news. And we're going to end on some good news in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. Columbine was meant to be a much larger tragedy than it was. Micropene, Stinky Nuts, Klebold, and bedwetting mama's boy Harris wanted to kill at least 500 and literally blow their fucking school up. Why? According to Harris's journal, so they could start a little rebellion or revolution to fuck things up as much as we can. They wanted to leave a lasting impression on the world. Well, congrats, assholes. You did it. The world will always remember you two as sadistic, delusional pieces of garbage who should have been drowned at birth. Great impression. Number two. These two assholes were not relentlessly bullied. Their so-called enemies were people who didn't give them a ride to school on time 
Or kids who wore white hats, who called them names sometimes, may have pushed them around a time or two, just like they called other kids' names and pushed them around. They were bullies who pretended to be victims. Eric even thought he was the victim for getting in trouble for vandalizing someone's van. Number three, Eric Harris was a psychopath and ringleader of the Columbine Massacre. And, uh, you know, something was clearly fundamentally wrong with Dylan as well. Maybe counseling would have saved him. Maybe not. Maybe some people are beyond saving. You know, even some kids. Uh, Perhaps there's some truth to the way Dylan used Shakespeare to describe why he and Eric turned out the way they did. Maybe this was a case of good wombs hath borne bad sons. Number four, bittersweet. Not all famous Columbine grads have been dirtbacks. How's that for a palate cleanser? Mm, Thank you, Big Head Todd. Ah, it's as good as the first time I heard it. And number five, new info. After all this negativity, let's end with something positive. How about this? Schools are safer today than they have been in previous decades. Is that true? That's what James Allen Fox, professor of criminology at Northeastern University, who has studied the phenomenon of mass murder since the 1980s, said in 2018. Fox and doctoral student Emma Friedel crunched the numbers and the results were surprising. Their research says that while multiple victim shootings in general are on the rise, that's not the case in schools. There is an average of about one a year in a country with more than 100,000 schools. And according to Fox's numbers, the overall number of gunshot victims at schools is down. Back in the 1992-1993 school year, about 0.55 students per million were shot and killed in 2014-2015, for example, you know, years after Columbine. The rate was closer to 0.15 per million. The best number, of course, would be zero, but Columbine did not kick off a wave of school shootings that just continued to grow and grow and grow. They didn't kick off some dark revolution. Despite terrible tragedies like this one and many other school shootings, your kids are still, statistically speaking, very, very safe at the schools they go to. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Columbine Massacre has been sucked. Uh, I am glad I learned so much about that. I hope you are. I I did buy into the narrative before uh, this, that they were two kids who were, you know, picked on a whole bunch. I still thought it was, you know, no excuse for what they did at all. But I did think they'd been relentlessly bullied. And were these outcasts, not not the case. Uh, Thank you again to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Horsecock, Johnson Paisley, Get Better Now, Bit Elixir, Logan and Kate Keith at Spicy Club, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery, doing production work this week as well and next week as well. Thanks to Liz Hernandez and her all-seen eyes running the cult of the Curious Facebook page. Thanks to everyone who goes into the, that little group for continuing to turn this podcast into a community. And thanks to everyone at Discord as well for even more community. Also, thanks for letting us donate $6,100 this month to The Innocence Project. To find out more, go to theinnocenceproject.org. Link in the episode description. Also, Sweet new Time Suck UFO tank top in it. Badmagicmerch.com. Logan continuing to kill it with his designs. Hail Nimrod, you beautiful bastards. Uh, thanks also to everyone who continues to rate and review the show. The suck continues to spread. Makes me so happy. More people finding it all the time. Being able to continue to podcast has been such a bright spot in this strange, often dark year. Praise Bojangles. Uh, next week, we're getting goofy. I am very excited. We're sucking a cult. Uh, Tony Alamo and the Alamo Christian Foundation. Uh, do you remember this Alamo? I, I, I doubt it, uh, but it was memorable. Tony Alamo was a one-time street preacher whose apocalyptic ministry grew into a multi-million dollar network of businesses and property before he was convicted in Arkansas of sexually abusing girls he considered to be his many, many wives. Uh, yeah, of course. 
Here we go again. Tony Alamo Christian Ministries attracted hippies and alienated youngsters when it started on the streets of Los Angeles in the counterculture of the 1960s. Fuck yeah. Love these LA counterculture cults. Calling themselves Jesus freaks, Mr. Alamo's followers followers preached a wrathful version of Pentecostalism, had a little bit of Westboro Baptist Church in them, a lot of angry God talk. And also, they did a fair amount of bedazzling. You heard me. In the 1970s and 80s, members of his ministry made elaborately designed denim jackets that were sold to celebrities like Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, and several country music stars. Former followers said Mr. Alamo made all decisions for them. Who got married? What children were taught in school? Who had to wear clothes? Or who got what clothes? Who was allowed to, you know, who was allowed what to eat? Uh, he preached shit that like, uh, like the, that gay people were tools of Satan. And he told a reporter in 2008 that consent is puberty. That's a quote. Consent is puberty. When questioned about child brides. Uh, he's a real piece of shit. And there's so much more craziness to his story. Uh, and he may have the best cult leader name of all time. Tony Alamo. Sounds like a used car dealer. Uh, he was born Bernie Hoffman. Uh, it's going to be entertaining this next week. And it's going to be more entertainment right now in today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Our first message today coming in from Super Sucker Ace Johnson calling me out on a mythology blunder that I made in the Bruce Lee suck. Ace writes, hey, Grand Suck Master, you fucked up on your mythology. Now you're right. When you said that Bruce Lee was like Mercury and flew too close to the sun, my bullshit meter went off. It was Icarus who flew too close to the sun, not Mercury. The story you were referencing is a Greek legend of the inventor uh, Daedalus, who is said to have created the labyrinth. He and his son, Icarus, were trying to escape from the Isle of Crete. Daedalus crafted wing from feathers and wax to fly to freedom. He and his son were able to fly away, but before they did so, Icarus was warned not to fly too close to the water or he would be swallowed by the waves and warned not to fly too close to the sun or the wax holding the feathers would melt. The story ended with Icarus being amazed by the view and then wanted to see how high he could go and he flew too close to the sun and fell to his death. Mercury was the Roman messenger god. So not only did you mix up the names, but also the civilizations they were from. Still love you. And all that the suck team does, your loyal space lizard from the dry shitties, Ace Johnson. Well, damn it, Ace. You nailed it. Uh, I did mix all of that up big time. Uh, that's what I get for going off my notes in a moment and trying to wing it. I love it when you meet sacks, uh, correct me and increase the accuracy of the suck. Very important to be as accurate as possible. More and more important all the time with the media blitz we get of twisted truths and the sea of clickbait and social media bots and Russian, Russian disinformation campaigns we've got to wade through. Uh, hope life is good down in the dry shitties. Uh, speaking of fake news, Top Shelf Sack, uh, Michael Dunlap has a great story for us. Sends in a uh, fantastic example of how dangerous, you know, uh, fake news can be, how some good critical thinking can, uh, can help us avoid falling for fake news. Michael writes, hello, Time Suck team. I manage a military surplus store and had an incident happen that, thanks to having some critical thinking skills, a thing you talk about often, may have helped a young man who came into my store. Here's the situation. A young black man wearing a rainbow mask and necklace entered my shop. These descriptors will be relevant. He was visibly shaken and asked to see knives. I engaged him in discussion and found out he was worried about being attacked by the KKK. Showed him my line of self-defense products and he eventually settles on some things that should be effective and defensive needed. During our talk, he shows me that, uh, a notice his grandmother had sent him stating that the NAACP has credible information that white nationalists are going to be hunting young black men in the area this weekend for initiations. Being young, black, and gay made him feel like a prime target. I can't even imagine waking up to a message like that. My first reaction was, oh shit, I need to warn my friends. Then I reread the forwarded message and noticed things. No date was given. 
This weekend could have been any weekend. This area doesn't mean anything. There's no context. Is this from Florida, Texas, Idaho, Vermont? I start seeing all the hallmarks of a fake message that has gone viral spreading fear. I checked the NAACP website, Googled NAACP warnings in my area, nothing. Showing the young man this and pointing out how to critically judge these kinds of memes and messages took him from being afraid to being calm. I don't know where this thing started. It certainly did its job and made someone afraid. I'm angry that this young man, his family, and so many others were the victims of this fear baiting. I'm angry that this fake message was created. I'm angry that this is a very believable message in in uh, 2020 America. I shared with him my own motto that I try to live by, which is live aware, not afraid. Be vigilant and know the dangers that lurk around you. Be prepared to handle them, but don't let fear rule you or then they, quote unquote, win. They, the ones who spread hate and fear, it can be a fine line to walk and it is okay to ask for help when you need it. Mike Dunlap, Space Lizard, Team Meat Sack, hail Nimrod. Well, hail fucking Nimrod to you. Love this message. Yes, live aware, not afraid. Good on you. So much good on you for turning another scared meat sack away from fear, giving him a good tool to use to be less afraid in future situations. And yeah, it really is beyond fucking sad that in 2020 America, a message like that of such bigoted hate does sound pretty credible. Uh, Now a super cool Idaho-Bruce Lee connection. Uh, Connection from Bruce Lee to the cult of the curious sent in from super sucker Justin Wall. Justin writes, Dear Suckmaster Flash, Long time listener, first time caller. Just got done listening to the Bruce Lee suck. And as per usual, you killed it, sir. Uh, thank you. I fucked up. <laughs> I fucked up on Icarus, but you Okay. Um, fairly familiar with the story of Bruce and Brandon Lee, as I assume most people are. But who knew there were so many juicy carotene nuggets sprinkled in there? So tasty. Anyway, I wanted to write in to share my personal experience with the Lee family. First off, I live in Idaho. You live in Idaho. Correct. But as you may or may not know, Linda, Bruce's, widow's, uh, Bruce's widowed wife, actually calls Idaho home as well. Backstory time, and I did not know that. Uh, I work in the AV trade. For those who don't really know what that means, I put in high-end electronics in people's homes. Nowadays, that means fully automated homes, audio, video, lighting, security, media rooms, you name it. But I've been in the business for a while, and back then, it was mostly hooking up big stereos, landline phones, and moving around unreasonably heavy, big-ass tube TVs. Those things are ridiculously heavy. Uh, so you can imagine how excited I was when I found out that on this particular day back in the early 2000s, I was going to be hanging my first flat screen. It was a 35-inch plasma, super new to the market, somewhere in the ballpark of about 15,000 if memory serves. That, that's crazy how much those, you can get a 35-inch plasma now, uh, I don't know, 70 bucks, probably 100 bucks on some crazy, you know, Black Friday type sale. 15,000. As excited as I was to hang this stupidly expensive TV, I was really blown away when I found out that we were going to be, or when I found out who we were going to be working for, the one and only Linda Lee Cadwell. My business is a small family business here in Boise, started by my dad. And at the time it was just me and my brother. My brother has always been a Bruce Lee fanatic. He's been doing Jeet Kune Do for years. Even uh, his one and only tattoo is a small dragon. That's awesome. So needless to say, he was on another level. I was bouncing in my seat when we went through the gate to her house. We go inside and just normal house. No gold nunchucks, hanging over the fireplace, no movie posters, no big shrine to Bruce, no sign of her past life with an icon. And why should there be? She had remarried years ago. It would be strange to have pictures of her dead husband, uh, ex-husband littering the mantle regardless of his namesake. But truth be told, I was a little bummed. That was until Linda came home. She was instantly one of the nicest people I'd ever met. Not everyone with money treats the workers who come into their homes like people, but she was great. Inevitably, my brother let it slip about how big of a fan he was. And rather than begrudge his fanboy, she embraced it. 
They talk forever about all kinds of things, you know, uh, all kinds of Bruce Lee and his, his philosophies. He, he was in heaven at the end of the day. Linda showed us around her house. She pointed out pictures of Brandon and Shannon on the mantle, on the fridge, took us to a workout room where she has up a few movie posters and headshots of Brandon's. She was just a proud mom. It was great. Finally, she led us to a closet in the back hallway, opened a cupboard, and inside was her Bruce Lee stash. <laughs> I don't know why my, my mind went to the weirdest place. I just have to share this. When you said, like, I wrote the show up a cupboard, I wanted you to say, and inside was fucking Bruce Lee. He's still alive. Never died. She's been hiding him all these years in the cupboard. Uh, no, but she had three stacks of books. She proceeded to sign both the books she wrote as well as the Tao of Jeet Kune Do for us. In mine, she wrote simplicity, peace, and happiness. It's awesome. In the pursuing years, we've worked for her many times. She once flew us to Palm Springs to work on her house there. Uh, we stayed at her guest house. So for half a week, we'd work all day. Then we'd just hang out with her and her husband at night. One night, Linda cooked us a fantastic Chinese dinner. One night, we went to a local brewery for drinks. My favorite memory of her was drinking a beer with her, sitting at a table while she told us a crazy story about Brandon stealing the family car when he was 15. She told us about how Bruce was unbeatable when it came to arm wrestling. Uh, we somehow ended up all uh, arm wrestling with her. I let her win. She gave my brother that 35-inch uh, <laughs> plasma TV years later. It's in his kid's room now. And she just recently gave me her 65-inch when she upgraded. She's such a nice person. I'm so proud to say she's a family friend. She even came to my brother's wedding. She's a super great person. I'm super lucky to know her. That's my story. I would apologize for the long letter, but I'm not. It had to be long. That's how words work. <laughs> uh, thanks for all the suck uh, and for opening my ear holes, my heart to some sweet, sweet yacht rock. I'm forever changed. Get your ass to Boise, please. Your faithful space are Justin. Bonus fact, Linda married another guy named Bruce. He's a golfer. Talk about some shoes to fill. Yeep. Justin, I love that story. I love hearing about how cool Linda is and getting some behind-the-scenes Lee tales. I love how she still treasures Bruce's legacy. Uh, man, that suck still inspires me. Uh, I hope you get to Boise one of these days as well. Who knows with COVID when that'll be? Who knows? Uh, enjoy that beautiful Boise summer. Love that town. Uh, and hail Nimrod. Uh, now for some laughs. Coming in from Snortin' Sucker, Jackie Berry. Jackie writes, you ruined my car. Hello, suck master. I just had to tell you really quickly that I ruined my car and I totally blame you. While listening to the Bruce Lee suck, I was driving to New Mexico to be with my fiance, and I got to the part where you were talking about the medication Lee took just before his death. I was already laughing while listening to you struggle to name this medication, and I went to take a drink of my bang energy when you very loudly went, fuck these medical words. <laughs> took me totally by surprise, made me laugh so hard that bang came spraying out of my nose and mouth all over my fucking car. It covered me in my entire driver's side. All I could... <laughs> All I could do was yell, damn you, suck master, while laughing hysterically and trying to clean up the mess I made. Thanks for the laughs and for the stickiness. Now coats my car. Hail Nimrod, praiseable jangles, and don't go too far, Lucifina, Jackie B. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, I truly am glad that my supreme frustration uh, with not being able to speak the only language I can speak, as well as I would like to, is in many moments at least good for some laughs. I uh, hope you had some fun in the land of enchantment and hail Lucifina. And now we'll leave with a good message speaking to the strength of the cult of the curious, grateful meat sack, Kyle Short, shares some hard times and sweet support with us. Kyle writes, greetings, master sucker. First off, I'm a big fan of your comedy and a recent fan of Time Suck. Thank you. Appreciate everything that you do. Now the real reason for this email is to give a shout out to the entire cult of the curious. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going through some of the darkest times I've ever been through in my life so far, being the only source of income for my family and working two jobs, still totally struggling, feeling like I'm failing at everything. I posted my story to the Cult of the Curious page, and I simply just mentioned the fact that I've desperately made a GoFundMe. I wasn't asked for money at all, just some kind words of encouragement. 
One person went and found the GoFundMe, posted it to my original posts. The cult came together, started donating money to help me out. I was getting Facebook messages from people donating money along with several emails saying the same thing. I almost broke down in tears at the fact that the complete strangers were coming, uh, going in and helping out a fellow meat sack. You really have something great going here. And to you and to everyone in the cult of the curious, I would just like to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Just when I was thinking about taking a one-way trip to Nimrod's fiery asshole, these great people have pulled me out of a bind. Words cannot explain the amount of gratitude that I feel, and I'm tearing up just writing this. Thank you again. Thank you to everyone in the cult. I truly love each and every one of you guys. Well, well done, cult, and well done, Kyle. <laughs> Don't punch that ticket, buddy. You let Nimrod punch it for you. Till then, you fucking fight. When life hits you, you kick it back like Bruce fucking Lee, kicking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the head until his goddamn sunglasses finally fell off. Never give up. Love you, dude. Hail the cult of the curious. Hail you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for today. Have a great week. Please do not make any pipe bombs or saw off any shotguns, please. Uh, it's a lot more fun. Just stick around and just keep on sucking. <laughs> Hey, everybody. I'm Dan Cummins. And I'm Joe Paisley, and we are your hosts of Is We Dumb, a podcast that's going to be your home to come and laugh at the idiocy of humanity so you're not just pissed off about it all the time. Which is like, fun. Yes. I mean, we get we get fired up, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it also, it's bad for your heart. And no one wants a sad heart all the time. No, it's it's real sad. <laughs> but, we're, but we're not just going to laugh at, you know, expense of other people the entire show. No, we'll make fun of ourselves mm-hmm. as well for the dumb things that we've done, the dumb things that we continue to do. Dumb things we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we find out that you've done something stupid, you know, we're going to make fun of you as well. We'll track you down. Mm-hmm. We'll search for you. We know where you live. So basically, it boils down to this. We're here for two reasons. A, have a lot of laughs. Hey, <laughs>, laughs. Right? And then B, we want to try to leave every episode a little less dumb than we were heading into it. And we do that by looking at an example after example of exactly how not to live your life. Laughing our way through a variety of segments like Dumb Dumb Idiots, where we share random stories from around the web of people being perfect examples of the stupid side of the internet. Uh, they have been hired to carry out clients' fantasy of being tied up in his underwear <laughs> and stroked with a broom. Whoa, whoa, okay. <laughs> They've been hired to carry out a client's fantasy of being tied up in his underwear mm-hmm. and stroked with the broom. <laughs> I don't even, I can't even picture what that is. What is stroked with the broom? <sighs> now, we're also going to highlight our weekly supreme example of stupidity in Apocalypse Pending. What? Look at that. Oh, and that's like a newer Audi mm-hmm. SUV. That's a nice vehicle. What is she thinking? <laughs> We're going to explore just how ridiculously petty and self-absorbed we humans can be when writing shitty reviews online in a segment called One Star Heroes. Hate them. Oh, really? <laughs> You're just this nice, kind person out in the world, and restaurant after restaurant, people are like, uh-uh. Nope. Don't want your business. <laughs> She's here. Lori's here. <laughs> Refuse to take her order and hide. There's only one place ever in the world that when you pull up to a drive-thru, they might disappear. (laughs) Yeah. And that's if, like, a magic store had a (laughs) drive-thru. And because we do know not everything online is terrible. A lot of it is, but there's actually Mm -hmm. a lot of good stuff out there, too. We'll highlight an example of something positive each and every week with Sliver of Hope. Yay, some positivity. So here we have, um, bring it up on the screen here, Zach. Zach, bring it up, fuck! Okay. (laughs) Captain Thomas Moore... 
yeah. World War II veteran who captured hearts around the world after successfully raising millions of dollars for healthcare workers fighting the novel coronavirus has been officially knighted. Plus, we'll inevitably end up with a variety of other segments that will shed light on the endless amounts of utterly insane products for sale, must-see videos, stupid viral trends, and the countless other gifts the internet keeps throwing our way. And every time that you give me something like mm-hmm. you, you think I'm working, yeah. I'm not. I'm I'm looking at cool shit I could buy. I get there's a lot of fun stuff up. That's, that's great stuff. So join us for new episodes of Is We Dumb every Wednesday at noon Pacific time. We'll have our official two episode launch party on August 12th. Woo-hoo! And you'll be able to find it um I don't you know wherever the fuck you listen to your podcast. Hey, isn't August 12th your birthday? Yeah, but I didn't I don't think anyone cares. Ah, I, I care. Happy birthday, you fucking dumb idiot. Aw, thanks so much, fuckface. Yay! It's the only gift I want. Listen to this, be dumb. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, Reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.